Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I'm great. And the reason, because even though it's via Zoom, we are getting to spend a holiday together. Get out of my head. It is Canadian Thanksgiving, everybody. It is, uh, and uh, we've never, we've never Thanksgiving together. I don't think so. No. I mean, obviously, pre like age of four, because around yes. three or four, I moved away. But by that point, who knows up to then how many holidays and things we spent together? But we've done one New Year's Eve. Yep. Uh, we've done one Christmas. Yep. Which was in the nineties. Um. And then we did one Halloween, but I don't even think it was officially Halloween, was it? But it was it was close enough we could go to Halloween parties, but not close enough that we could take the kids trick-or-treating. Yes. That's which right. Which is another damn shame. But just the amount of holidays that we could, that we haven't had the chance, you know? I do know. I do know, but that's again that's that's the magic of true crime and cocktails. It is uh it's making our dreams come true even when we don't really plan for it. Yes. Yeah. Um if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll notice we're in our uh, uh true crime and cocktails Halloween merch which is still on sale until November 1st. And I got to say, I also added a cell phone case in this design to the store, <laughs> mostly because I just wanted it for myself. Uh, yeah. I, this is also not trying to get people to buy. I just am really proud of it. <laughs> As you should be. Thank you. You made the little eye in the magnifying glass bigger. It's, it's a, you know, it's a simple thing, but 
I just, I really, I love, I love the designing. Anyway, truecrewmerch.com, if you're interested. Again, I'm not trying to push you. I'm just giving you the info. Um, listen, I am so excited about this episode of the show because it's a non-true, it's a non-murder true crime. Yes, there is going to be murder. <laughs> <laughs> but we're Spoiler not focusing, alert. We're not focusing on the murder. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but we're, of course, going to be talking about the Gardner Museum heist, which is uh, about art. That's what yes. you, you typically steal from museums. Yes. If you do, if you're going to, you know, be that kind of person. Of course. And uh, we were talking about, you know, because, you know, you, you know, OG True Crime and Cocktails episodes, we would plan what story we were going to talk about. <laughs> then we got to a point where we just kind of riffed. We would talk about whatever came out. But because this was about art, Christy wrote on her timeline she provided with me ahead of time. We always give each other a rundown of, of an episode ahead of time. She wrote, maybe we just talk about art. <laughs> Which I love on many levels because I don't think we've ever talked about art. No. But... but I received, and this is this is this is what I need to kick off this section with because I'm so jazzed that I can share this and it's relevant. Christy once sent me a text mm-hmm. message, and it delighted me uh, because I felt like I was getting to see a more philosophical side of Blanche. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So I, um, for those who don't know, because. It's time. I'm a single lady again. I'm a single gal. And I am somebody who doesn't typically on social media follow the like male thirst trap accounts. Like it's just not, I, I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. I feel it's weird to to follow them. If you, I mean, look we're, two we're two different people. We were two different people. I just feel like, I don't know, it's always weird. And so there was an account I found though. And I was like, my gosh, I was like, this, this man is he is very talented and he is very beautiful. And I I was feeling like, maybe I'll follow it. And so I was texting Christy about this because she knows I have this weird bugaboo. <laughs> and I said, and I said, literally, I'm following him for his talent. It's more about his talent than his looks. And I was clearly trying to justify it to myself. And she responds, and I've pulled it up so I can quote it exactly. She responds, you're allowed to appreciate something solely for its beauty. It's the reason art exists. <laughs> And I just felt again, like, I just got a real glimpse into the inner workings of Blanche. And it was such a prolific, Mm -hmm. profound statement. I screen grabbed it. And I am so, again, jazzed that it's finally come to a point where it's (laughs) super relevant to the episode. Yeah, because it's Blanche and art. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, look, I have moments where I could say the most profound thing you've ever heard. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, ah, you want nachos? <laughs> um, really, me in a nutshell, I can't remember what movie we watched recently, but people got on a bus and I went, oh, they're speeding. <laughs> like, you know, and yes. then they go on this bus and they're walking and they're like, oh, they can't find – it was cops looking for bad guys, and they thought they were on this bus. And then it's like, well, they're nowhere. And then they look at the the trap door on the bottom of the bus, and they went, oh, their speed again. And that's <laughs> that's the level my brain normally is. Right. But it was just like a very quiet, like, oh, their speed. And it was like, yeah, that's where I'm at. So that's who I am normally. Right. But sometimes – 
I can talk about beauty and art. <laughs> and then and then just as quickly as she came, she's gone again. <laughs> I like it. I like that she just f- yeah. she flies in, drops yeah. a nugget of wisdom and and flitters away. Oh, um, nuggets. <laughs> Case in point. Yes. Um now, listen, yeah. I mean, speaking of art, I feel yeah. like it's it's interesting because again, it's not something that has typically come up for us, but it's uh, you know it's a part of my life uh, to some extent. I mean, art's a part of everyone's life when you really think about it. But in terms of visual art, I feel like the big story for me, or the big thing for me, is there is a painting that followed me for years in Toronto when I was very young, and I remember I first moved to Toronto and I saw it in a restaurant and I loved this painting. I was like, oh my gosh, it's of this this girl, and I was like, that's me. That's a painting of me. And it would pop up at different places in Toronto over the course of a few years. And I would see it again somewhere else. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like it's it's popped up again. And it eventually got, and I always thought to myself as I was like this very poor, you know, girl in her early 20s, I was like, one day I'd love to own that painting. And so eventually when I had a little bit of money, the painting popped up again. And I got a hold of the artist via MySpace. I'm dating myself. <laughs> and I told him my story. And I said, listen, your painting is, it, it resonated with me so deeply. And I don't know if it's for sale, but, and I told him the whole thing. And I went into a lot more detail than I am now. Of course. And he was like, I would love to sell it to you. So I own that painting. And it's like such a beautiful symbol of like my journey in my early 20s, my journey in Toronto, my journey with my career. Fucking love that thing. <laughs> I still have a photo somewhere that you sent me of you going to pick it up, I think, or him yeah. delivering it or something. Because I think it's with you, the artist. It's, yeah. It's you and the painting and the artist. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love Look it. Look at you. Again, I believe so, Jason I mean, Dolan was his name. I should double check that. But we should find that photo because we should post it um, yes. on Instagram because uh and tag him because he's a very talented artist. Um but I, what my question for you is, have you had a visceral response in some way to a piece of art you've seen? Yes. Uh, <laughs> for reasons I don't know, but psychologist hat, <laughs> I do know. Oh. Um, uh, we, a few years ago, before we moved to the house we are currently living in, we uh, put our house up for sale because it was a three-bedroom home, and we had just had our third child. And I know a lot of people have kids that share rooms. Uh, Spoiler alert joke, our kids now have to share a room in order for us to have an office where I can uh, podcast in. But are you allowed to use podcast as a verb? I did. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, so before we put the house up for sale, our realtor brought in a stager. Shout out Penny. Because this woman was a hurricane. And I was like, I don't know about this. She walked into our home, didn't say anything, and then just like started wandering around. So I followed her with a notepad. And everything she said, I wrote down. And it was like, some things were as simple as like, one of the rooms was like our toddler's room. And it had like cars, characters, decals all over the place. And she was like, I want you to move that. Instead of being all over the room, I want them to be on one focal wall. And then she would be out the door and go somewhere else. And it's like, okay. And it was like, there was a a kite that looked like a pirate ship in one of my kids' rooms. She's like, any chance we could move that to this room? I'd like to see it hung in the corner. 
And then off we go to another room. Like, this just, <laughs> she did this in every room, and I wrote down this list. We did, a, in a month, we did everything she wanted in this list. We moved furniture, we painted, we did all of this stuff. So then she shows up, and she's like, I'm going to fully stage it. So she brought in, like, rugs, and she brought in some furniture, like, changed our kitchen table out, stuff like that. And she brought in some art. And one of them was, like, this bulldog-looking thing that was, like, multicolored. And I was like... Nah, I don't care for that. Uh, and she's like, I'm thinking of hanging it in the basement. And I was like, perfect. I don't go down there. Um, and then she brought out this one and it's like a three foot square. And it was basically like a Dalmatian with like uh, just a Dalmatian on top of like a gray background with like a little bit of gold highlight throughout it. And there was something about its face, specifically its eyes that I was like, oh my God, that's my Lou. It looks just like our dog Lucy, who we had at the time. And I was like, she who she was not a Dalmatian, but uh, they have the same face. The eyes were exactly the same. And I was like, oh God, that's her. it's her eyes. Right. And then the house sold really quickly. So again, shout out Penny because she was it was <laughs> it was madness, but it was accurate madness. She there was a method to her madness. She knew what people were looking for whatever. So that the house sells and we're like, okay, she comes to pick up the rug and the table that she left and all the stuff that isn't ours that she's left at our house. Because we don't need it anymore because we sold the house. So she's like, we're taking everything. And she's like, now the, just so you know, the art that I brought in, if you want, you can purchase it from me. I don't know where she got it from, but she was like, you can purchase it or I'll just take it and she'll potentially use it in another house or use it wherever. So I was like, oh, yeah, the one from downstairs? Nah, you take that. Um, <laughs> and But I was like, ooh, I kind of think I want, like, I really, really want that dog, that Dalmatian. I was like, I really, really want that because there's something about it that cripples my soul when I look at it, especially now that our dog has passed. Uh, so I'm like, oh, yeah. I really want that. And then I never ended up doing it because we were like, oh, it's a little bit expensive. And we're just in the process of buying another house. And it was like, this isn't the time. Where's it going to go? My husband wasn't a huge fan of it. Uh, so I was like, okay, it's fine. I'll let it go. Uh, my dream was that our realtor, who owes us nothing uh, because we paid her, uh, my dream was that she would somehow gift that painting to us and it would be in the house when we arrived, Yeah, which is she did give us a gift. But uh, not a good enough one. Not not the painting. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, okay, okay, that's fine. And so I've thought about that painting. We've been in this house now like six years. I've thought about it for the last six years. And every time I think about it, I just, my soul dies a little bit that I let it go. And I would like to find it again. And I don't know where to even begin because is it going to involve me contacting the realtor asking if she still works with Penny, contacting Penny and being like, where did this come from? Where did it go? How do I find it? Am I going to basically like national treasure this in a way to like finding clues on the back? Like she has like a part of a name. Maybe it's like a receipt that's ripped off and I have to figure out the rest of the receipt. Like there's, I need it to be a puzzle for it to be fun. <laughs> I've, I've lost my mind. The point is, I am to a point, I, I'm desperate to get it back. Like, I really want to find it. So my dream 
is that I'm going to be reunited with that painting someday. I mean, I have a birthday coming up. (laughs) So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no if it was easy to find, but right. Again, I have no idea where to begin to be fine to find it. But my ultimate goal in life now is to be reunited with that painting. Well, speaking as someone who has been reunited with a painting, I believe that it can happen. And I also believe that when you speak it into the universe, yeah. it, it, it can, you know, cause a change of energy, a shift that maybe it wasn't coming back to you, but now that you've put it out there, maybe it is. And maybe also someone that, you know, is close to you might have heard this and maybe they'll do something about it. <laughs> the world works in mysterious ways. It does. It I does. mean, I didn't even really, I wouldn't really even consider myself an art person per se. I mean, the closest I come <laughs> a few weeks ago, Cheddar was laying on our fireplace. She likes to, when she likes to sit up high, she likes to dangle a single arm down. And while she was dangling her arm, I sat down on the couch below her and reached my hand up. So we recreated the um oh, what's it called? Michelangelo's creation of of Adam or whatever of course, it's called. Yes. We recreated that photo and I I will post I've cropped it so it's just my hand and her paw. It cracks me. Up at the sight of it, which again, I don't know if that's the point of art, but that's where we're at. I don't care for the original Michelangelo, but if it was cats, I would love it. (laughs) Well, we've heard about our next piece of fan art we're looking for, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen and people. I'm like a step away from the dogs playing poker, you know what I mean? I get that. (laughs) If you just take any painting and put cats in it or a dog in it or something instead of you know, it's cute. Then I might be more into it, but I respond to animals in art in general. In general, I do. When sure. I was living in Chicago, I loved the Art Institute and I used to go all the time, like with people by myself, didn't matter. I just loved wandering around because it had so many like classics that you've seen. And then of course, all, you know, tons of amazing art that you've never seen before, but it was also featured in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So if you remember the like famous paintings and stuff from that, it's like, it's a cool experience to go and be like, ah, I remember that one. I remember that one. But my favorite in the entire place was this sculpture that was made. I can't remember the date. I should have researched this, my gosh, but it was made like you know, we're talking like cave people time. Like it was made wow. a very long, long time ago. And it's this kind of one foot square, but 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 round, like one foot in circumference. Um, and it is a mother primate and a baby. And it's very simple. But the person who did it, like created it and and made them smiling. And I just thought it was like the most beautiful piece of art because it spoke to this person's opinion of the monkeys or primates, whatever exactly they may have been. It spoke to like the want to capture them in this way, the want to like represent the the, the, like relationship between the mother and the baby. Like there was just so many layers to it that I thought it was so beautiful. And every time I went to the Art Institute, that would be my first stop. I was like, I got to go see my monkeys. Like it was like my favorite piece in the entire place. Sure. And then they started selling replicas 
of the exact thing. It's an exact replica, same size, everything. And I own that too. Because <laughs> I was just like, I mean, it was, again, like it's my most favorite thing. And it's, uh, we'll find a picture of that too and post it on uh, uh, the True Crime and Cocktails Instagram. Uh, and you'll see what I mean. Like there's just something that's so be- beautiful about the simplicity of it. And the idea, again, that it was like, even then, uh, at a time where, I mean, I know that cave paintings have always been a thing, but it's interesting to me that there was like the draw in humans from as far as we know, from the beginning of human time, humans have been drawn to create art. And isn't that interesting that it's like an innate part of us um, as humans is to communicate via art. And I think that that's like a really interesting, beautiful thing. Well, because it's international, it doesn't need a language to understand it. Yeah. And... May I remind everyone? Yeah. You're allowed to appreciate something (laughs) solely for its beauty. It is the reason art exists. (laughs) My concern is someone's going to take that not in the way I intended, but... I think, no, I think that it's, it's a beautiful statement. It, it means just that it's like, I mean, again, we're being, we're being glib, but it means, you know, it's like, you can appreciate the beauty in anything, I think is the point. You can find beauty in anything and and yes. that's uh that's positive. It's it's like, you know, you should I shouldn't have to feel bad because I think the man is beautiful was the whole point. It's okay to think the man was beautiful. Yeah, it's not like you're harassing him. You weren't no. sliding in the DMs, no. you weren't catcalling, you weren't doing any of the things I would do. <laughs> No. <laughs> I was drinking at that exact moment. <laughs> no, of course I don't do that. No. But anymore. But <laughs> uh, the point is, I've never slid into a DM. No, she hasn't. I can attest. I, I'd know about I, it. I, well, I'm, try- I'm trying to think. <sighs> I'm fairly certain my husband messaged me first. I don't know. We talked about it not long ago. Our teenager was like, who slid into whose DMs? And I'm like, no, it wasn't like that. It was kind of like that. <laughs> I don't remember who that culprit was, but listen, the point is is that yeah. you know, again, you can appreciate the beauty in something and that's nothing to be ashamed of. Yes, um, you should see half the people we've currently been following on True Crime. <laughs> I should go through our list. I should go yeah. through our following list. I can't you'd, wait. You'd be surprised at the ones that I've added since Instagram came back. <laughs> it was a harrowing time for all of us, and I'm so glad <laughs> that we're back where we need to be. Now, before yeah. we jump into everything, I got to ask the question every- on everyone's mind, what you drinking over there? Uh, well, prepare to be bored, ladies, oh, gentlemen, people me of too. all kind. Um, it- it's just simply a water. And why is that? Because it's two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> We, it's unprecedented. We've recently yeah. we've just been so swamped, and we record when we have the time. Um, well, guess what? You're you're not alone because what I have going over here is what I'd like to call my trifecta of hydration, which is uh, a diet coke, which of course is not hydrating. But then I've got a tangerine lacroix, and sure. I've got a, a tumbler of water. So I've got a I know I don't I don't really have three three beverages at once, but today I do. Well, I think it's important. You want to stay hydrated? I think that's uh, all that matters. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll do a Coke. And then I just went, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Christy, you've been up for like six hours. It's fine. Uh, but I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, I'll, I'll see how I'm feeling at the break. 
because I also don't want Nana over here to get too jittery with the caffeine <laughs> because I, I, yes, swamped is the word for it. The fact that we're recording this on a holiday. <laughs> it speaks to it. It speaks it to does. it. Yep. It does. Yep. It does. And it's because we both normally when we record at night, um, we go into the hours of the night and we don't have like a stopping time that's specific. Today, we both have Thanksgiving plans. Yeah. So we're like, Kate, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> this is the time. And it was you messaging me being like, hey, so I might be a little bit late. And I'm like, cool, because I'm literally still typing. <laughs> and we were supposed to start, I think, at like one and you were like, I'm so sorry, I'm running late. And I'm like, I am literally still typing. And uh, it was about five minutes before we sat down that I'm like, I've printed it off. I don't know what most of it says. I'm underslept and my brain is on fire. It's Listen, on fire. Yes, I was running late also because I took peaches to the vet for a routine checkup and it turned into a battery of tests that I can't get into because it's a whole other episode. Yeah. But I was frantic so yeah your brain's on fire so's mine yep. and i can't wait for us to dive into this pool of chaos together <laughs> <laughs> the first half should be organized great i can't guarantee what's gonna happen after we take that but break see, th what's great is is that by then we're normally a little bit loose and hammered anyway so it'll just feel like normal it'll yeah, just feel is, like we've been drinking make sense yeah. i feel like the break is gonna happen and i'm gonna be like Oh, yeah, I need a I I need a coke. <laughs> like I'm, I don't know. I this this was and don't get me wrong, this was a joy to research ah. because I'll say this, I watched a documentary for it. There was a second second one that I did not get around to, but I watched one and it was so new unsolved mysteries style. Oh. And it, it really took me back to our first few episodes and reminded me of when I used to like watch the episode and then take the notes and then rewatch the episode. And I watched those episodes so many times. And it's just, for the most part, it's not death. The focus on this is a heist, which is just like, okay, yeah, I'm listening. And then you're you get into it and then deaths happen. But why do deaths happen? Spoiler alert, the mob. And that is apparently where I like to live well, in my brain is with the mafia. I it's it's a problem. Like I should not be reading things and going, oh, okay, yeah, I get their appeal. That shouldn't be the answer to anything involving the mob. Dear listeners, welcome back to the show, please. <laughs> cookies, everybody. Oh, it's been such a time. It's been so long since we've seen cookies. It's nice. <laughs> yeah, I knew she was going to be here. Uh, I do mention her at some point, although, uh, bless my heart, I don't know when in my notes she comes up because I uh, my brain is half on fire and half just a melted pile of goo and i don't know what day it is yeah you made a comment about uh when we were talking before we hit record you said something about we have a new episode coming out tomorrow and i was like how is that possible it's saturday no today was uh, today is monday 
That's how it's possible. I am not well. <laughs> well, listen, let's get into it. I have a green bean casserole I have to make. It's a whole thing. So uh, let's get into this episode. Gardner Museum Heist. I can't wait to hear all about it. And listen, I'm thankful on this Canadian Thanksgiving to be spending time with my best gal. Oh. So this is a joy for me. This is what I'm thankful for. Bless it out. And all thank right. you for referencing green bean casserole. It's on Thanksgiving. Uh, it's my specialty. Of so. course it is. Yep. I'll make it. I'll make it for you sometime. In the middle of the night on March 18th, 1990, two men dressed as police officers entered the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. 81 minutes later, the men left the museum the museum the museum <laughs> with art worth nearly half a billion dollars. To this day, neither the art nor the thieves have ever been found. So who pulled off the biggest art heist in history? Was it a low-level thief working for a private collector? Members of the mob looking to gain a future bargaining chip? A middle-aged married couple who enjoyed the thrill of a heist? Or could it be that the real thieves were inside the museum all along? Ah! I was going somewhere with that. Again. I love it. I, I, at like four or five in the morning, I ended that with like a, or could it be that the thieves were coming from inside the house? And I cackled for so long about it and then looked at it with fresh eyes the next morning and went, nah, that joke doesn't land. Oh, <laughs> so let it go. Listen. So I, uh, I, I've let it go. She's, she's not the same person <laughs> researching at 4 a.m. that no she one is. is. Attempting to clean up or research from 4 a.m. at 8 a.m. <laughs> Listen, I've been in the person. exact same space, and I, all I gotta say is sometimes you gotta make a you gotta make a couple of stinkers to make the the real gold ones shine. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm sorry, and you're welcome for what I may have put in these <laughs> <laughs> notes because even though it was literally up to the minute, nope, I hit print, and my brain just Captain Holt erase. <laughs> <laughs> Someday someone's gonna be like, "What does that mean?" And I'll just be like, "Brooklyn Nine Nine." You've got a you've got a few seasons to watch, but g good luck to you, listeners. Yeah, and why not? It's a great. It's not? a romp. It is. So, Isabella Stewart was born April Fourteenth, eighteen forty, in New York City. Her family was very wealthy, so Isabella attended private schools in New York and was then sent to a finishing school in Paris. A school friend named Julia Gardner introduced Isabella to her brother, John Lowell Gardner Jr., better known as Jack. Again, that whole Jack John thing that I, I can go into for hours because yep. it does not make sense to me. Nope. Uh, it only makes sense to me in the land of Keanu Reeves movies where he plays a character named either Jack or John. <laughs> That's all he does, pretty much. And in my brain, those characters are all the same. They're just an ever-evolving, like a Pokemon. The evolution of the of the John, or no, that, no, that's... I also, you, you, you lost me at Pokemon, but it, it's neither here nor there. I have many questions, but we can't go down that road because we'll go so no. far off the, off the track. Oh, I'll ask, no. I'm writing it down to ask you about later, Pokemon. Okay. You're right. You're right. Just... Focus, focus. Uh, so Isabella and Jack were married shortly before Isabella's 20th birthday in 1860. The newlyweds moved to Boston, where they lived on Beacon Street in a house that was a wedding gift from I Isabella's father. 
On June 18, 1863, the Gardners had a son, John Lowell Gardner III, better known as Jackie. But sadly, Jackie died of pneumonia on March 15, 1865, just months before his second birthday. Shortly after this, Isabella suffered a miscarriage and went into a deep depression. Children's side note. While the Gardners never had any more biological children, they would spend their lives raising Jack's three nephews. In 1875, Jack's brother Joseph died by suicide after losing his wife ten years prior. He left his three young sons to Jack and Isabella, who informally adopted and raised the boys as their own. One of the boys, Augustus P. Gardner, who was less than two months old at the time of his mother's death and only ten at the time of his father's death, would later accompany Jack and Isabella on their art acquisition trips. In 1867, Isabella's doctors suggested to help her combat the effects of her depression that Jack should take Isabella out of the city and take her traveling. It is said that she had to be carried onto the ship on a mattress. Oh, wow. Dear. The couple headed to Northern Europe and Russia, and years later traveled to Austria, Norway, France, the Middle East, and Asia. During their travels in 1878, Isabella began collecting rare books and manuscripts, beginning with early editions of Dante's work. In 1884, Isabella and Jack Gardner visited the, oh, fuck, I should have looked this up, Palazzo Barbaro? Palazzo Barbaro. Yeah, it's that, see, I needed the spunk. That's what I need, which means I'm getting a Coke at the break. (laughs) She needs the sugar spunk. Yep. That's, God, stop. go there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's in Venice, Palazzo Barbora. Barbaro? We're going with that. Yep. Uh, She visited it for the first time in 1884. It was built in 1425. The Palazzo is a pair of adjoining palaces on the Grand Canal, done in a Venetian Gothic style. The Palazzo would later be a source of inspiration for Isabella in the creation of her museum, which we will get to in a moment. During the gardener's travels, Isabella met a Harvard student named Bernard Berenson in 1886. Bernard attempted a literary career, but soon discovered his true talents involved Italian Renaissance art. So Bernard became Isabella's chief art advisor, helping her acquire many of the masterpieces in her collection. Bernard described Isabella as, quote, she lives at a rate and intensity with a reality that makes others, other lives seem pale, thin, and shadowy. Newspapers would print any sort of rumor or gossip that they could about Isabella, including once they claimed Isabella took lions from the zoo for a walk in the park. But regardless as to what they printed, Isabella would never respond or even try and deny it. She once said, quote, don't spoil a good story by telling the truth. She smoked cigarettes. She hosted a boxing match in her own home. (laughs) And she once showed up at the Boston Symphony Orchestra wearing a headband that supported her beloved Red Sox. Oh, wow. It is believed that Isabella was an early champion of gay rights, which I don't need to tell you is incredibly impressive for the 1800s. Yeah. Uh, Isabella was described as eccentric, and author Henry James once said that Isabella, quote, is not a woman, she is a locomotive. (laughs) 
Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. She, I, I love this woman. She, she did what she wanted to when she wanted to, and I respect that deeply. Isabella's father, David Stewart, spent 20 years amassing a fortune importing Irish and Scottish linen. He then added to his vast fortune through investments in Midwestern copper mines. David died on July 17, 1891, at the age of 80. As Isabella was his only child, she inherited $1.75 million upon her father's death, which is the equivalent to $52.6 million in 2021. Prior to her father's death, Isabella had been collecting art on a small personal scale, but after receiving her inheritance, Isabella decided it was time to step up her collecting. 1896 marked a turning point in Isabella's collecting, as that year, advised by Bernard, she acquired important paintings by Rembrandt, including his self-portrait, age 23. And that was the moment when Isabella and Jack realized they needed more space to become the true art collectors that they wanted to be. They first considered expanding their home, combining two houses, but as Isabella's collection and ambitions continued to grow, Jack felt that it would be more sensible to buy land and build a museum for the art, with apartments for them to live in. Basically, the gardeners did with art what I dreamed to do with Funko Pops and rescue animals. <laughs> Ditto. Oh, who do you think's going to live in that apartment? <laughs> you ain't living alone. <laughs> nope. The kids can visit. Yep. Uh, so they contacted architect Willard Sears, who had remodeled their house in Brookline, and planned uh, plans for a museum began. The gardeners were very passionate about Italy, in particular Venice. So they planned to incorporate as many elements as they could to mirror the Palazzo Barbaro. Uh, I'll post some photos of like a side-by-side -side to show the completed museum and the Palazzo to show just how similar they are. Uh, so make sure to check out our socials for that on Instagram and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails and on Twitter at Not Detectives. Nice. In the summer of 1897, Isabella and Jack traveled through Venice, Florence, and Rome, gathering architectural pieces for their future gallery. They purchased columns, windows, doorways to adorn every floor, as well as reliefs, balustrades, capitals, and statues from the Roman, Byzantine, Gothic, and Renaissance periods. Christy, she's an architectural nerd. Side note. <laughs> <laughs> She's underslept, folks. This is what you get today. Oh, it's getting good. Uh, once again, here I am trying to help the people who, like myself, uh, aren't familiar with these architectural terms. Because, yeah, I had not heard of most of these. Um, for example, a relief. I did not know what that meant in architectural terms. It's a sculptural technique where the sculpted elements are attached to a solid background made of the same material. Mm. A balustrade, which I'm probably saying wrong, is a row of small columns topped by a rail. A capital is the topmost part of a column that provides the structural support to the arch above it. And in case I have done nothing but further confuse the good people, I will, of course, post photos of these architectural elements on our aforementioned socials bless aforementioned who am i you give her one episode 
where she researches art and suddenly she's a fancy bitch. (laughs) It's just where we're at. Yep. So Isabella and Jack were looking to purchase land in the Back Bay Fens area, even though at the time it was mostly just swampland. But suddenly Jack died of a stroke on December 10th, 1898. But that wasn't enough to stop Isabella's dreams from becoming a reality. Six weeks later, Isabella purchased a plot of land in the Fens and had the architect draw plans for the museum. Boston's Museum of Fine Arts would later purchase land in the Fens in 1899, so maybe the gardeners knew something about the area that the others didn't. Construction of the museum began in 1899, and Isabella prided herself on being at the job site every single day. And I'm not talking being there to supervise. Isabella was full hands-on during construction. She once stated in a letter, quote, I still go daily, dinner pail in my hand, to Fenway Court work. She got up on ladders to demonstrate to the plasterers the exact effect that she wanted to see on her stucco walls. When ceiling beams arrived for the Gothic room, she felt that they were too smooth for her liking, so she took an axe and hacked at them until they were the desired effect that she wanted. Construction on the museum was complete in 1901. The fourth floor of the museum was designed and served exclusively as Isabella's private residence. She moved in shortly after construction was complete and then devoted nearly two years to personally arranging the art in the galleries on the first three floors. She installed paintings, sculptures, tapestries, furniture, rare books, manuscripts, decorative arts. She continued to acquire works and change the installations for the rest of her life. In 1902, Isabella wanted to test the acoustics of the museum, but didn't want anyone to see it before it opened. So, she invited a hundred students from the Perkins Institute for the Blind to a small concert at the museum. Concert confusion side note! Apparently, the concert went off without a hitch. However, there was a bit of a problem when the children were trying to leave, one of the attendants who worked at the museum was a little too cautious. So when the children entered and took off their boots and then continued into the concert, this person took all the boots and like put them off to the side, moving them from where these poor kids... (laughs) The blind children. Where the blind children had left them. Of course. Um, Unfortunately, it caused a lot of chaos when it came time for the children to put their boots back on. To the point where Isabella was on her hands and knees trying to pair up rubber boots and fit them on children's feet. Feets. What was that? <laughs> Oof. On the foot of kids. There we go. Oh, she's. You're problem. doing great. Yeah. Uh, when construction on the museum began, Isabella named the building Fenway Court. But on January 1st, 1903, guests were invited to a grand opening celebration at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. There was a concert by members of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and a dramatic unveiling of the interior courtyard garden. But in true Isabella fashion, she served champagne and donuts. (laughs) I'm in love with her. I think she would have been our kind of lady. She's our kind of gal. I can tell it already. Renegade. I'm saying it. Uh, The museum was officially opened to the public in February 1903, and it was described as an architectural spectacle. The courtyard 
lies under a skylit glass roof and features stonework arches, columns, and walls integrating Roman, Byzantine, Gothic, and Renaissance elements. It's full of sculptures representing powerful women from classic mythology, such as Artemis and Persephone. Each room throughout the museum is filled with antique furniture and decorated according to its theme. But Isabella isn't the only one to use their private art collection to open a museum. Someone that we've mentioned previously on the show also opened his own museum. Which brings me to... Guess who's back? Back again. Side note! (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Uh, Some of our dear listeners may recall episode 28, which focused on all-around creep. Army Hammer. Of course. Well, in the moment, we aren't talking about Army. We're talking about his great-grandfather, industrialist Armand Hammer. In November 1990, the Armand Hammer Museum of Art and Cultural Center opened in Los Angeles. Thing is, while the Isabella Gardner Museum was praised for its construction and design, the opening of Armand's museum was described as, quote, It would be difficult to imagine a more pathetic episode in the recent cultural life of Los Angeles than the opening of the Armand Hammer Museum of Art and Cultural Center. Oh, my God. Now, Armand had quite the collection. He had about 100 paintings, a scientific notebook written by Leonardo da Vinci, a collection of drawings, prints, sculptures from a French caricaturist, Honore Daumier? Uh, apparently over the span of 17 years, Armand publicly and repeatedly promised to bequeath his entire collection to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, a.k.a. LACMA. Uh, Armand was even a trustee of LACMA, uh, starting in 1968. A collector named George Longstreet painstakingly assembled a collection of 6,000 pieces from artist Daumier. But Armand and LACMA wanted the collection and both expressed interest. But the museum deferred to its trustee, Armand, and Armand ended up acquiring it for himself. But he assured LACMA, in writing, the collection would be donated to them after his death. He made this written promise in 1975 and again in 1980. So Armand gets his collection, swears he's going to donate it. But then it came time to put his money where his mouth is. Armand suddenly demanded that the art that he promised be housed separately at the museum in special galleries uh, devoted solely to his collection. Uh, The bitch was just trying to get his own section of a museum, which, take a nap, Hammer. Yeah. Uh, The museum, of course, said no. So Armand decided, fuck it. And not only kept the art for himself, but decided to build a $96 million museum that is simply referred to as a vanity museum. (laughs) Now, the term vanity museum does feel like it comes with negative connotations. But remember, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is another example of a vanity museum, as is the Henry Clay Frick Collection in New York and Norton Simons Collection in Pasadena. But the thing about vanity museums, putting your name on it just to feed your ego isn't enough. You need to deliver the goods, as they say. And Gardner, Frick, and Simon all were able to do that. Their collections were described as extraordinary. Armand Hammer's collection, however, is described as, quote, too thin, too frankly mediocre, 
to sustain a museum of its own. And yes, Armand's collection was well over a hundred pieces, but apparently only maybe a dozen of those were considered impressive. And while the other vanity museums were filled with pieces chosen specifically by the museum's namesakes, Armand never chose art himself, he paid someone else to do it, or specifically, the former director of the National Gallery of Art. This director agreed to help Armand choose his collection on the agreement that specific pieces be gifted to the National Gallery. Armand surprisingly went through with that promise and gifted some drawings to the gallery in 1987, and some say those pieces were the best in his collection, and that without them, Armand's collection is, quote, flimsy. (laughs) (laughs) Armand died less than a month after the museum opened. The museum's operating budget was provided a $36 million annuity from Occidental Petroleum, which Mm. caused questions as to the future of the museum's collection and the role that the Hammer family would play in the museum's administration. In 1994, the regents of the University of California entered a 99-year operating contract with the Armand Hammer Foundation to assume management of the museum, which at the time was described as fledgling (laughs) and, quote, America's vainest museum. But if you ask the Armand Hammer Museum, they claim to be, quote, and this is a real quote, the hippest and most culturally relevant institution in town. (laughs) Oh, my word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And while Isabella's museum was described more positively than Armand's, the Gardner Museum was not without its problems. The lighting was poor, as it was purposely dimmed to preserve the paintings. Some feel the placement of the paintings and sculptures is somewhat random and overcrowded. There's no identifying labels. But that was part of Isabella's plan. She wanted the viewer to appreciate the art itself and to have an immersive emotional experience. She didn't want her museum to be a stuffy history art lesson. She wanted people to find their own meaning in the work. And it was all because of Isabella's unwavering refusal to do anything except exactly what she wanted. At that point in time, there were certain archaic expectations of women, but Isabella wore what she wanted, traveled when she wanted, and collected what she wanted. She made her vision of a museum a reality, and I have so much love and respect for her. She had a dream, and she didn't let anyone tell her no. But she also got hands-on for her dream to be exactly how she envisioned it. Over the next 20 years, Isabella filled her museum with visual and performing artists by organizing concerts, lectures, and exhibitions. She brought in artist John Singer Sargent to paint in the Gothic Room. She brought in Australian opera singer Nellie Melba to perform on the balcony in the Dutch Room. After the museum opened, Isabella continued to buy new works and rearrange the rooms. By 1914, there were so many new objects that she rebuilt the entire East Wing, adding several new galleries. In 1919, Isabella suffered the first of a series of strokes, although she continued to receive guests for the rest of her life. She died five years later on July 17, 1924. In her lifetime, Isabella acquired more than 7,500 paintings and objects, and her goal was to share them with the world. In Isabella's will, she left the museum, quote, for education and enjoyment of the public forever. 
Also in the will, Isabella left the museum a $3.6 million endowment and said the museum directors could use Isabella's private fourth floor residence in any way they saw fit. Today, the fourth floor is the main headquarters of the museum. What was once Isabella's living room is now the museum's contemporary art office. Hmm. But Isabella's will also contained a stipulation that no artifact, piece of furniture, or painting was to ever be added, removed, rearranged, or loaned at all. And if this stipulation was ever violated, all of the pieces were to be immediately packed up, shipped to Paris for auction, and the money would be given to Harvard University. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so I like this, it's my way or the highway, kind of like, she, she worked hard for it, so kudos to her. Uh, On one hand, I respect she spent years bringing her vision to life, so she didn't want anyone to mess with it. But on the other hand, by refusing to allow anything to be changed, it gave the appearance as though the museum was frozen in time. And some may say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And while I tend to agree, the one place that the Gardner Museum could have used some updating was its security. In September 1981, FBI Special Agent Edward Clark approached the museum's director and said that some robbers had found flaws in the building's security system and that they were case in the joint. Oh, shit. (laughs) Clark gave some suggestions as to how the robbers could attack, such as using a smoke bomb to create chaos, going in during a Tuesday night concert, showing up late at night dressed as police officers, showing up disguised as women in trouble. Clark claims he got his information from Louis Royce, a man who spent his youth sleeping inside the Gardner Museum to stay warm. Louis was now a lackey for the Rossetti crime family. Here we go. An FBI agent who was an undercover uh, in the Rossetti's family heard about the plan while trying to get him to sell, while trying to get to sell him art from another heist. Art heists happen all the time, apparently. Wow. Uh, papers were found that claimed them that they had a man on the inside, specifically a guard, and that the yellow room and the blue room were the most accessible. After the Gardner heist, which we're going to get into shortly, Louis Royce admitted the idea was his, but repeatedly denied he had anything to do with the actual heist. Do we believe him? I don't know. We will get into the whole suspects thing later because there's a pile of them. But I'm not sure if I'm convinced about that guy or not. Uh, The museum board knew they were vulnerable to a robbery, but they didn't have much money to do anything about it. At the time, they had to install a climate control system to ensure the longevity of the paintings. But in 1982, the board of trustees decided to use what little money they had left to beef up their security. Closed-circuit cameras were placed around the perimeter of the building, and motion detectors were added. More security guards were added, but they were only paid slightly above minimum wage. And that's a start. Uh, But it certainly didn't make the museum an impenetrable fortress. Right. For one thing, there were no cameras inside the building. Because again, she said, you add nothing. You don't do anything. You leave it as is. Uh... And there was only one button that could be pushed to summon the police, and that was located at a single security desk at the front door. 
Otherwise, you could not summon the police from anywhere else in that massive building, which, I don't know, feels like a flaw. Um, in 1988, independent security consultants warned the museum board that the security needed more improvements. But again, due to Isabella's will stipulating everything remain unchanged, no further improvements were made. Which I will also say, in 2012, they converted carriage houses that were on the property into like a hundreds of millions of dollars, like they've converted it into something else to use for the museum. And I'm just like, how can you do that? I thought her will said you can't do anything, but I guess it's a different part of the property they felt they could. And also, where'd you get all the money to do it? Well, that's a, yeah. But again, we'll get into that when we get into suspects. I can't wait. So, the night in question Yes. March 18th, 1990, the day after St. Patrick's Day. Rick and Randy were the two night security guards on duty. Now, I've seen conflicting reports about who went on first watch. Randy claims he took the first sweep around the building, but Rick claims he took the first shift. I don't know why this is so hard to say and prove who it was. Um... Maybe because they want us all confused. I'm not saying they're suspects yet. I'm just saying I'm suspicious. Yeah. Of everyone. As you should be. At 1.24 a.m., two men dressed as police officers pushed the buzzer at the side door of the museum. Now, this entrance has two doors. Once you open the door from the street to enter into the building, you're stuck in a small area between the door and a second door. You can only get through the second door if you are buzzed in by security, who is sitting at the desk looking onto this area. One may go so far as to call it a vestibule, not to be confused with being stuck in an ATM vestibule with Jill Goodacre. (laughs) That's a Friends reference for our listeners. You're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So, 1.24 a.m., these two men wearing BPD uniforms push the buzzer to get in. Security guard Rick is sitting at the desk. The two men said they were there to investigate a noise complaint. Since it was St. Patrick's Day and festivities were going on strong in the city, and the fact that a fire alarm had gone off in the museum about an hour prior, Rick found the story to be plausible, so he buzzed them in. Now, it is museum protocol that no one, and I mean absolutely no one, is to enter the museum after hours, including police. No one is supposed to come in. So Rick went against protocol when he let the cops in. In fairness to him, he was only 23 at the time, and I feel like if I was in his shoes, I would have done the same thing, but that's because I have a deep-rooted fear of authority that I don't have time to work through with a therapist. Well, we'll get to it. Give us some time. Give us some time. Uh, The officers uh, asked if there was anyone else in the building. So Rick called to the second security guard, Randy, who assumed the police were there because of the fire alarm. One of the officers then claimed to recognize Rick, saying they had a warrant for Rick's arrest. They had Rick stand against a wall. They patted him down. Then they handcuffed him. Randy was also put against the wall and then handcuffed. The officers proceeded to duct tape the security guards' heads, covering their eyes and mouths. Then said, quote, Gentlemen, 
this is a robbery. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Which is, if I may, the total like movie line thing that I live for. Yeah. <laughs> this. Oh, so Rick and Randy were assured that if they followed the instructions they were given, they wouldn't be harmed. The security guards were led to the museum's basement, where one was handcuffed to a workbench and the other was handcuffed to some pipes. Thanks to the museum's motion detectors, the thieves' movements could be tracked. At 1.48 a.m., the thieves went to the Dutch room on the second floor, where they took the two star pieces in the room. Two Rembrandt paintings were cut from their frames to avoid triggering an alarm. Mm. And don't worry, I'll get into more specifics on the art that was taken, but for now, I'm just giving you the rundown on the crime, then we'll move on to the art. At 1.50 a.m., motion detectors picked up the thieves down the hall in the short gallery. One thief was in the Dutch room, probably removing the paintings from their frames, while the other grabbed five Degas sketches and a bronze eagle finial. The two spent a lot of time in both the short gallery and the Dutch room, often wandering back and forth between them. At 2.10 a.m., both thieves were in the Dutch room. Movement stopped at 2.12 a.m. and remained quiet until 2.23 a.m. when detectors picked up the thieves on the second floor, heading back to the Dutch room. At 2.28 a.m., the censors went off the last time as the thieves exited the building, Investigators say at 2.45, security cameras captured the thieves leaving, but I don't know what cameras they're referring to, as investigators have stated that the security tape from that night was taken along with the art, along with the printout of the motion detector sensor log. The log was saved on a hard drive somewhere, so... The thieves obviously didn't know about that or didn't care, um, so police were able to get the hard copy, but, or the, you know what I mean. They were able yeah. to get it from a computer, but the printout had been taken. Around 7.30 a.m., the day security guards arrived at the museum and buzzed to be let in. After waiting several minutes without a response, they called the head of security, who arrived and took the guards to the back entrance. They found Rick and Randy in the basement duct-taped and handcuffed, but otherwise unharmed. So now you get the general idea of what happened. I would like to add a few more things of note. Yes. Rembrandt's self-portrait, age 23, was taken off the wall, but the art was still in the frame. So I don't know if they planned to take it and ran out of time. It also seemed like they had hours to spare, so I don't know if they simply forgot and left it there. Maybe they were supposed to only get specific works and they realized that wasn't one on the list. I don't know. But they did take it off the wall and then just left it there, which I find interesting. Yeah. The frames for all of the pieces were left in the rooms on the floor where they were originally hung up, most likely due to their weight. However, the frame uh, from the mayonnaise... Uh, Shea Tortoni was left on the security guard's chair, which feels like a choice. Uh, another thing about the Manet, it was in the Blue Room, which is located on the first floor of the museum. Since it went missing during the robbery, it's believed the thieves took it. 
However, there is no sign that the thieves were ever on the first floor. No alarms went off on the first floor between the time the thieves entered and they exited. So I don't know how they got there. Um, did they find a way around the motion sensors, but only for that room? They didn't seem to care that they set them off everywhere else. Uh, and why did they leave the frame specifically at the guard station? Yeah. Obviously, it was like a some sort of... It was just like a... Maybe it was just them flipping the bird. Being like, here you go. Why that one specifically? I have a lot of questions. Uh, another curious thing of note was in the Dutch room. There was a hidden panel in the wall that opened up to a corridor and another exit. The hidden door was ajar in the crime scene photos. They don't know if it was open when the police got there or if police somehow opened it. But no one knew about the hidden panel except for the museum staff. Did the thieves access other parts of the museum through that panel without setting off motion detectors? There was an 11-minute point where no movement was detected. Could they have gone through that panel and gone somewhere else in the museum without setting anything off in that time? Unfortunately, uh, I have to say some of the investigation wasn't exactly top-notch. <laughs> the duct tape that was on the guards was removed, balled up, and essentially just thrown away. It was never examined for fingerprints, never collected as evidence. But don't worry, the police were totally on it when it came to security tapes. When they looked through tapes from the night before the robbery on March 17th, they found footage of a man leaving the museum around 12.45 a.m. They released the video to the public, hoping that someone might recognize the man. Oh, did I forget to mention they released that footage in November of 2015? <laughs> Thinking somehow that would help. Uh, investigators claim it, the videotape was mixed in with other evidence that had been collected at the scene. Mm -hmm. People claim the man in the video was the museum's security director, Larry O'Brien. So the police just decided it wasn't a big deal. But to that I say, is it normal for the security director to be in the building after midnight? Yeah, the, it feels late to me. The night before a huge heist? Like, that feels weird, but also I love that they're like, you know what, we need to go public with this. We need people to know who this man is. It's been like 20-some years. It's fine. Like, top-notch. Uh, <laughs> one other thing of note, two weeks before the heist, three people caused a ruckus outside the museum late at night. One man pounded on the door and demanded to be let in, be let in saying he was being attacked by two other men. The guard followed protocol and refused to let him in, so the man gave up and left, in the same car, as the two men who were attacking him. Whoa! So is it possible this was just a dry run to see how easy it is to get into the museum at night? It's possible. The thieves were in the museum for a total of 81 minutes, and they seemed to know exactly what they were doing. They took the VHS tape from the security system and the printout from the motion detector sensors. They also took 13 pieces of art. Uh, 
From the Dutch Room, the thieves took two Rembrandt paintings, namely A Lady and a Gentleman in Black and Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Both of these works were brutally cut out of their frames to the point where there are still slight canvas fragments hanging attached inside the frames. Which again, you would think would make it worth less. Again, you would not, think that. not an art expert. I recreated a Michelangelo painting with my cat. <laughs> Far from an art expert. Although what? some may say the new Banksy? What? <laughs> not the new Banksy. Uh, also taken from the Dutch room, the paintings, the concert by Vermeer and landscape with an obelisk, obelisk by Flink and an etching by Rembrandt called Portrait of the Young Artist or Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. The etching was only about two inches square, and I'm fascinated by the fact that they took the time to take that one out of the frame. Yeah. Where you think that wouldn't be that difficult for carrying. Um, also taken from the Dutch room was a Chinese bronze beaker, or ku, Q, something like that, from the Shang dynasty, which basically kind of looked like a fancy vase. It is said that the Chinese artifact was not worth nearly as much as some of the works that were left behind. The thieves then moved to the short gallery, where they took five sketches by Degas. This included two charcoal sketches, both titled Program from Program for an Artistic Soiree, a watercolor called Leaving the Paddock, a pencil sketch called Proce Procession on a Road near Florence, and an oil on paper called Three Mounted Jockeys. While in the short gallery, the thieves also took an eagle finial from the top of a Napoleonic flag. They apparently tried to remo remove the entire flag, which was in a case screwed to the wall. But after removing a single screw, they decided, Meh, we'll just settle for the finial, which was a weird choice yeah. because the finial is said to be pretty much worthless. Uh, so was it a random choice to take it? I don't know. My big thing is I want to know, were they given a list or did they just go crazy and pick whatever they felt like in the moment? I assume a list since their movements seemed almost planned out by sticking to two main galleries. The Flink painting was back to back with Vermeer's painting over a small table near the window. Was that one taken simply because of its proximity to one they were already taking? Uh, the single item that was taken from the Blue Room was the painting Chez Tortoni by Manet. This is the piece whose frame was left on the security guard's chair and the piece that was taken even though no motion detector sensors went off in that room or even on that floor the entire time the thieves were in the museum. Now, while the idea of people never seeing these art pieces again is, of course, upsetting to many, the biggest losses in the heist seem to be Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee and the concert. The thing about the Galilee painting is that it was Rembrandt's only painted seascape. And the concert was a Vermeer who apparently only did like 30-ish paintings in total. Accuracy side note. You're right, dear listeners. 30-ish does not sound like the kind of research you normally expect from your bitch, Christy. <laughs> but it turns out that no one truly knows the number. The current consensus is that there are 37 Vermeer, Vermeer works that were painted, but some scholars have doubts on the genuineness of three of them. So is it 34 or 37? 
Apparently nobody knows. So if nobody knows, you bitch don't know. <laughs> and that's where we're at. Yep. But what we do know is that art is easy to transport and can easily work as international currency. In the early 90s, the underground art market was second only to the drug trade. It seems more likely that whoever took the art planned to sell it on the black market or possibly give it to a private collector. But as of October 2021, the works have not shown up on the black market, which is interesting. I don't know how, I guess the FBI is constantly watching the black market, because how would they know if every single thing? Because if they are seeing everything on the black market, I have some questions on why they aren't stopping a lot of things that are on the black market. Yep, yep. Uh... It's unlikely that the art was taken in the hopes of using it as a bargaining chip because no ransom request has ever been made. Um, nope, that's the wrong page. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. You're doing great. <laughs> Listen, this is fascinating. I'm already oh. concocting theories in my mind because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's I know nothing about this. So, again, I'm engrossed. Enriched, not enriched, entranced. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that yeah, I, I have questions about the case specifically. I have questions about yeah. the, the broader, you know, what's the FBI's involvement in the black market and what <laughs> exactly <laughs> it mm -hmm. counts as, quote, black market trades. Um, yeah. But listen, let's take a very quick break. I need to hit the can and put up a sign saying, don't ring the doorbell. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back with more on this episode of the Gardner Museum Heist on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Gardner Museum heist, and our energy is at an all-time <laughs> level of frenzy we've never experienced before. Uh, before yeah. the break, Christy was going through <laughs> the details of the heist, the things that were taken, specifically the art pieces, and I think we're probably going to get into um, who could have possibly done it. Who done it? Uh, which I could not be more excited about because I already have opinions and I haven't heard any of the suspects yet. <laughs> okay, well, I go on some journeys oh. in this suspect. And again, I don't know what's written, so I'm sorry for whatever's about to happen. Never but apologize. Also, you're welcome. 
Yes. Because you'll have a good time, even if it's weird. <laughs> we're on a romp. We're on a we're on a journey. We all love it. Come on, everybody's yeah. on this on this yeah. ride with us. It's true. They all just know buckle in because you don't know what these chuckleheads are going to put them through. You know. Yep. Uh, so we've discussed the what. Yes. And the where. Yes. And the how. Yes. So it's time we get to the good stuff that Lauren wants. The potential who. To help us with a description of the thieves, we need to talk about the witnesses. Now, of course, the two security guards, Rick and Randy, both saw the men. Suspect number one, described as a white male in his late 30s, approximately 5'9", slim build with dark hair and a mustache. He was also said to be wearing gold wire-rimmed glasses Suspect number two, described white male, early 30s, approximately six feet tall, with a medium build, dark hair, and a mustache. The authenticity of the mustaches on both men were were questioned by the guards. Uh. And, (laughs) And yes, composite sketches were made, and of course you know I'm going to post them. But while we're talking witnesses, I have to mention the couple who were outside of the museum shortly before the robbery. Justin Stratman and Nancy Cloherty uh, were walking down Palace Road when they saw a car parked beside the museum. They believe it was a gray or blue hatchback, possibly a Dodge Daytona. Inside the car were two men sitting in the front seat, both wearing Boston Police Department uniforms. Justin distinctly recalls seeing the exact crest for the Boston PD on the driver's jacket. After hearing about the heist, Justin and Nancy went to the police station at Dudley Square to make a statement. Justin pointed out the patch on their jackets and said it was the exactly the same as what he had seen the night outside the museum. Justin and Nancy only spoke with BPD and were never contacted by the FBI, who had taken over the investigation. Years later, they got to see a copy of the statement they had given to police that day, and the description of the men in the car was far more detailed than they ever remembered giving. Especially the fact that it listed the approximate heights of the men, even though they were sitting in a car. So how would they have said how tall they were? And the answer is, they wouldn't have. So why was that description specifically something that that police file had to have? Yeah. That's a question we'll probably get into. Uh, So it feels sketchy to me. My brain is like, people assumed the thieves were pretending to be cops. What if they were actual cops who also happened to be thieves hiding in plain sight? They wouldn't be the first crooked cops. And yes, Let me stress, I know that there are good cops in the world. I'm just saying, is it possible the uniforms weren't just a cover? I am, of course, speculating. Of course. And honestly, it doesn't seem too far-fetched to me when you hear that some have suggested the thieves were operatives for the Vatican? Uh, There's the idea that maybe the thieves were working for a private collector since the paintings chosen were so random and not the most expensive in the museum. It would explain why the paintings have never surfaced on the black market, because, again, they make that assumption 
again, do you know everything that comes up on the black market? I've thought that was part of the black market's charm is they don't know everything. Do they have a Google alert on the black market? <laughs> it's weird. Like if they ever use the tag gardener art, then it, then it goes off. But believe it or not, it's never gone off. Huh. Like it's such a weird statement to make for like, but you know the stuff that's on the black market, right? Yeah. And you don't stop that. I know that that's a bigger thing and there need to be more people and all of that, but still. Yeah. Um, but if it was just some guys that were paid for a job, how have they not said anything yet? Right now, there is a $10 million reward for that art. To me, $10 million is a pretty big incentive to tell the police who has the art and cash in. And at this point, by getting the $10 million, not only has the statute of limitations surpassed, but also you kind of aren't going to go to jail for that because you're will. At this point, they don't care who did it; they just want the art back, right? And okay, great. So you can admit to it now. But uh, I'm convinced the people who did it are dead. But we'll get to that. Ooh. Um, if a private collector, <laughs> oh boy, um, if a private collector was really smart. And they'd hired guys for this job. You think that they'd just kill them when it was complete. And Cookies has arrived. <laughs> I assumed she'd wait until we got into our upcoming section on the mob. Um, but one thing I know about Cookies, she doesn't play by the rules. Not even her own. <laughs> so, Lewis Royce. He admitted to an FBI agent that he had previously planned a heist at the museum and claims he never followed through with it. Could he have been involved? Maybe. I haven't found proof either way. But remember, Lewis is in with the Rossetti family, so maybe someone from the family was involved. After all, the mob would probably be okay with selling fenced goods on the black market. Fenced goods. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So I fenced stolen. I assumed, but <laughs> the fact that you just casually threw out a mob term <laughs> means cookies is here, and I'm yeah, I'm all about it. Uh, I mean, also uh, earlier I did comment that they were casing the joint. Yes, and that's something I've heard before. Fenced yeah. goods, you've stepped out of the colloquialisms. You've stepped out of the common <laughs> vernacular. You've gone into mob mm -hmm. talk, which I could not be happier about. Yeah, I'm on another plane. Oh, I love I it. I think, and it's just, but again, like, my brain is like, how, if this is just people who were hired by some billionaire to get this art for him, why would he keep them alive? And that is why I'm like, this is why I'm like, uh, this is why the mob calls to me. <laughs> because I'm like, why? I also have a lot of questions on why the security guards were left alive. They're the only ones who could identify your faces. But again, it's it's in here somewhere. We'll get I hope. There. Oh, man, I hope. Uh, so in 2013, the FBI said that, quote, with a high degree of confidence, they believed that organized crime was behind the Gardner Museum heist. But maybe it wasn't specifically the Rossetti family, but what about someone from the Irish mob, such as someone like James Whitey Bulger? 
Now, Whitey was a member of the Winter Hill Gang, whose members were predominantly Irish-American. Whitey was the gang's leader from 1978 to 1995 and and is one of the most infamous Irish mob bosses. In 1999, Whitey was added to the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list and was considered to be the most wanted person on the list just after Osama bin Laden. Jesus. So that should give you an idea about Whitey as a person. Uh, It was also said that Whitey, along with many members of the Irish mob, sympathized with the Irish Republican Army, or IRA. The Boston mob would supply them with weapons, so it was believed that maybe Whitey or members of his crew pulled off the heist to gain collateral that they could use to buy guns for the IRA. On September 14, 1984, a swordfish boat called Valhalla sailed uh, sailed out of the north shore of Boston. The boat contained 20 tons of ice, 7,100 pounds of mackerel and squid, and about seven tons of AK-47s, ammunition, grenades, bulletproof vests, and explosives. Jesus. The contents of the boat were meant for the IRA and the six British-ruled counties of Northern Ireland. Whitey and his associate Patrick Nee had helped to gather the large arsenal that was in the boat. It established radio contact with the Irish fighting boat Marita Anna and transferred all of its illegal cargo to the Marita. 200 miles, or 322 kilometers, off the Irish coast, the Irish Navy seized the Marita Anne, which was one of the largest armed shipments in Irish history. In 1994, Whitey was indicted for multiple murders and racketeering. He fled but was captured in 2011 and remained in prison until his death in 2018. It was suggested that due to Whitey's involvement in the crime underworld, he might have heard something about the Gardner heist. The FBI agent who originally told the museum the mob guys had been casing the joint Uh, said they were members of the Rossetti family, which is associated with mob leader Frank Salim. And since Frank and Whitey often work together in various criminal dealings, it wouldn't be a far stretch to think that Frank might have told Whitey about the Gardner Museum's security issues. And back to the IRA, Whitey was a very vocal supporter of theirs, including having secret meetings with the group's leader and agreeing to an urgent request to support the cause. I don't know what that urgent request was, but apparently stealing art and exchanging it for guns and military supplies is a long re- is long regarded as an IRA tactic for raising money. Mm. In 2015, an art theft investigator announced that he had been told by multiple reliable sources that the Gardner paintings had wound up within the IRA. Terrifying side note. So I've done some reading on Whitey Bulger. And dude was terrifying. (laughs) Like I briefly thought like, ooh, he's got so much going on. Get into the mob world. Maybe someday we do an episode on it. And the longer I went in, I was like, "Eh, maybe a little further in the future. Uh, (laughs) For example, uh, on Memorial Day weekend in 1980, uh, master safecracker Arthur Bucky Barrett robbed the Depositors Trust Bank in Medford, 
and walked away with $1.5 million. After the robbery, Bucky went into hiding. Now, Whitey had this belief that if a crime was committed in his geographic area, that the perps either needed to ask his permission or give him a cut. Or both. Bucky did neither of these things. So even though Bucky went into hiding, Whitey hunted him down in 1983, allegedly tortured him, and shot him in the head before hiding his body. Jesus. Bucky's remains weren't found until 2000. Wow. Assuming that it's true about how territorial Whitey was, it makes you wonder what he knew about the Gardner Museum, as that would have also been in his area. And this is the moment that I knew I need to get away. I need to step back from the mob because I was like, yeah, being territorial makes sense. They shouldn't make a move in your area unless you know about it. Oh, that's (laughs) (laughs) when you start agreeing with Whitey Bulger, maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe it's time to take a nap. Um, So if someone connected to Whitey didn't commit the heist. I believe that Whitey would have found out who the perps really were. And just to put a pin in the mob for a moment, I want to talk about a few other non-mob-related suspects before we just fall headfirst right into the mob. Um, Now, is it possible, in the grand scheme of anything is possible, that that someone connected to the museum is involved in the heist? The thieves were able to steal 13 paintings in just 81 minutes, so that feels like they had previous knowledge of exactly where the specific art was located and how to navigate the museum. They also knew enough to take the security tape and the motion sensor printout, not to mention the guards weren't harmed in any way. And to me, the fact that they left witnesses alive who could describe their faces in detail is very surprising to me. Maybe the thieves just didn't have it in them to be violent, or maybe the thieves knew the guards. Now remember, I'm not accusing anyone. I'm just speculating. But what about Anne Hawley? Anne was the museum's director six months before the heist. Her role was to, quote, bring the museum back to life. She remained the director of the museum from 1989 to 2016. So Anne was charged with the task of breathing some life into the museum, which is a difficult enough task already, but especially when you have to add in the fact that you can't physically change anything about the museum because of Isabella's will. I know it sounds crazy to think that a museum director would orchestrate a massive robbery, but... It did get the museum back into the news, and I'm sure it helped get more people through the doors, especially people who flocked to see all the empty frames that are hanging on the walls, people who want to step foot in the crime scene for themselves. Again, I'm speculating. I'm not saying she's guilty or involved in any way. I'm just saying the timing is weird. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And we look at everyone. That's what you're supposed to do. Cops do it. Yes! Uh, But while we're talking about suspects in the museum, what about the sketchy guards 
Now, not much is known about Randy, as people seem to just write him off in this story, because unlike <laughs> because not unlike Dante and Clerks, he wasn't even supposed to be there today. <laughs> the regular guard, Joe Mulvey, called in sick that night, although the museum claims that was not a rare occurrence. And I assume they announced that publicly because the person who calls in sick the night of a massive heist sounds super sketchy to me. Yeah. But not to the police. <laughs> they didn't seem bothered by him. Unbelievable. Um, also, Randy had never worked a night shift before, so he probably wasn't familiar with how things worked. I'm sure that a day shift and a night shift were quite different. Just note, that I originally wrote, you know, as different as night and day, and then I laughed for so long at my own lame ass that I decided, God, that's not funny. I have to take that out, and my brain is weird today, so now it's back in. I like it. Uh, Randy was so unsure of what the night shift entailed that just in case he'd have time to practice, he brought along his trombone. Stop. <laughs> If, if I hear, I'm just hearing random like trombone in my head, and it's hysterical. Gosh, I wish you could all journey in there sometime. Yep, it's like Jumanji. The not the good parts. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so most people kind of ignore Randy in this situation to the point where he hasn't even shown his face, and his full name hasn't even been published. I know his name's Randall. But that's about it. Uh, but the same can't be said for Rick, a.k.a. Richard Abbott. At the time of the heist, Rick was 23 years old and a musician. A few days before the robbery, Rick gave his two weeks notice, claiming the job was getting in the way of playing with his band. Oh, boy. <laughs> Rick, Rick also admitted he planned in to call in sick the night after the robbery because he had tickets to a Grateful Dead concert out of town in Hartford. So the day after the robbery, he skipped town and just never returned to his job at the museum, which you were taped up in the basement for eight hours. I get why you didn't go back. But still, after going through that, you were still, I'm going to go to that concert. Do we know he and went? Then we assume he went. Mm, interesting. Mm. But Rick was a suspect early on. The FBI questioned him extensively, and investigators even told Rick in 2013 that they were never able to eliminate him as a suspect. Oh. And of course, uh, not, only, <laughs> not only did Rick break protocol to let the thieves into the building, he also opened the side door at 1.01 a.m., just 23 minutes before the thieves buzzed to come in. Rick claims he did it all the time. But to that I say, why? Was he going outside to smoke a cigarette or something? Uh, the timing of it is sketchy to me. Rick claims he used to do open the door all the time. I could not find any proof as to whether or not that was true. I'd have to look through the motion detector sensor logs from every shift that Rick ever worked. And obviously, I do not have access to that. But to the Gardner Museum Board of Trustees, I say, give me some time alone with those files. <laughs> Let her have some time with the files. Yeah. I'm not saying I could get your art back, but I'm saying I'd try. You never know. Yeah. Uh, 
Rick also admitted that he let people into the museum on January 1st for an impromptu New Year's Eve celebration. And then there's the fact that Rick would often show up to work high, although he claims he was sober that night. Mm. Again, I'm not saying he's guilty. I guess at this point I'm saying he was a terrible security guard. (laughs) No offense, Rick. Of course. He apparently is married with children living a lovely life now, but I still have questions. Did they not kill them because they know who the bad guys are and they know that if they say anything... They'll be taken out. I mean, or I have, were again, they given a cut of money? Oh, but see again to me, right now the offer is ten million dollars. That would be so hard to say no to when it's like. But again, if you don't know exactly where it is, but if you know who did it, well, here's the other thing though. Let's say I know we're already speculating, but let's yeah. say very quickly. Let's say Rick was working when the three people had the melee and was like, let me in. And he was like, nope. Who's to say that after that he wasn't approached and like, look, here's the deal. Whoever. Next time, let us in. Whitey, whoever was like, you're going to let us in next time. We'll make it worth your while. He's 23. He wants to be in a band. A small amount of money at that time in someone's life may have seemed like a very large amount of money. And if the mob is involved, I don't know that I would come forward for $10 million because how much is your wife worth? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like who knows? Sure. Sure. Well, I I would need to know in advance, which of course I'm not going to know, but I would need to know like how, how good's their memory? Like, how long does mob memory stay? Like, if the people I specifically made a deal with die, can I then come forward? Or are people going to be like, you can't do that to, you know, once a mob, always a mob? Like, I you think know? it's, yes. My instinct, again, having no mob experience firsthand, <laughs> again, fencing was a new term for me. Um, sure. Fenced goods. I, uh... My instinct is, is that even if, using Whitey as an example, just as an example, sure. um, if his mob continues to exist even after he's dead, I think if you out him, I think that the mob would get revenge. Oh, you're like, right. I don't, like revenge. I, don't, yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, like, if God yeah. forbid... You know, I died in 30 years. Somebody came out and said something shitty everyone. about me. <laughs> But I'm just saying in 30 years, I feel like it wouldn't matter if there was money on the line or none of it would matter. You'd be like, it's it's no, it's no less fresh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm basically saying that our relationship is as though we're in a mob family together. <laughs> oh, we are our own mob family. Wait a minute. If you're cookies, does that make me biscuits? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope so. I hope so, too. Cookies and biscuits. That is... Well, fuck. Now you're going to have to make a shirt. (laughs) Yep. And the fan art. Uh, Again, we don't ask for it outright, but we do. Um, Anyway, moving on. I love how adorable our mob is. I know. I mean, what would be amazing is that 
our mob, like run by cookies. Of course, cookies is the the <laughs> the big cheese. Obviously, sure. Cookies is the one that's like she's got the plans. She gets shit done. She's like, you don't yeah. cross us, whatever. And then biscuits mm. is like, let's talk about what's going on in the universe energetically. <laughs> It's almost the relationship yep. of um <laughs> oh, so sorry. It's almost the relationship of Pollux, Castor Pollux, and Pollux Troy. <laughs> in face off. Am, am I tying your shoe at the plane? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if a cop takes my face and goes in prison, <laughs> you're gonna know. I would know. You would know. Yes. Because there's no way, there's no way that someone could use my face and show up. Uh, they're not gonna say profound art shit about beauty. I would have questions immediately. I could I could ask three things immediately. And I would oh, know. Yeah. And I'm never gonna share them. Because then well, that's... of course not. Because then they know. Exactly. But I know. Good because luck. they're going to have to binge the full back catalog of true crime and cocktails to try and be me. And good luck, buster. And listen, <laughs> they could still do that. And there's still things that I know that I could ask yeah. that no one else would know. And they would falter. Yeah. And that's when I would be like, Judas! <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, shit. Well, now I need us in a face-off remake. There's so many things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that reference. I would also have Tic Tacs in like a box with, with my guns, I think. Is I it Castor Troy and Pollux Troy? Yes, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. I love that I was like, I can't let this go if I've improperly named the characters <laughs> from John Woo classic face off because that's important to me it's it's up there that movie there's so many things but that movie god i love that look movie. friend of the podcast leslie seiler and i for years have talked about wanting to do a shot for shot remake of that movie with me as john travolta and her as Nicolas cage because the great My news is is you get to play both parts that is true and uh, you know what? I may not be the biggest fan of John Travolta. Uh, I was younger years, but I think they were both so great being each other. You know what? Here's here's the other thing, dear listeners. I cannot believe this is the first time Face Off has gotten brought up in a significant way on this show. Uh, it's shocking it's taken a year. That's the first <laughs> thing I want to say. Second of all, that movie's a trip. If you have not watched it or you haven't oh. seen it in a long time, rewatch it because it's astounding that it got made. Thirdly, as cheesy, over the top, whatever you want to label mm -hmm. it as, their performances were great. I agree. I think they did a great job. And yeah. there's something about the like campiness of the whole thing that I don't know. For me, I love it. That's a that's a once a year watch for me. Oh yeah. I are like I can immediately hear John Travolta in my head, except at this point he's Nicolas Cage go and they're seeing each other and he's going, Woo! looking. <laughs> 90s action movies. It turns out 90s action movies are our jam. Yep. Oh. Yep. Hey. Yeah, hey. I... 
listening, I just I just pulled my hand across the camera, like in face off. That the John Travolta <sighs> character family, Sean Archer uh-huh. family, uh, does to everybody. They they delicately. <laughs> in a in a in such an unsettling way that it should never happen, and I really hope the children in the family end it with their generation. But they didn't use it as a tradition. I agree. Just <laughs> I just want to say very quickly again because I know we got to get back on track. But I love yeah. that of all of the we, and we've never discussed this of all of the quotes of all of the lines. I knew the one that you were going to pull out. Again, these are the kinds of questions I would ask someone who I had a theory may be. Another yeah. person wearing your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, do I enjoy that movie? Of course. Does Blanche specifically like that airport scene when Nicolas Cage gets out of the plane and the wind blows his coat open and there's like a really hot music? Hot music. It's <laughs> instrumental, Christy. <laughs> Why am I saying Christy? It's Blanche at this point. <laughs> but like, he like is moving slowly and then reaches back and pulls out like his golden gun or something. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that is the most Blanche cookies <laughs> combination right there. Like, cookies would like a gold gun. <laughs> oh, who are we kidding? <laughs> I'd want mine to be pink. I was going to say Mother of Pearl. Oh, Oh, my God. As a mother of Pearl. <laughs> pop, pop. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, my God. This, this is off the rails with true crime and cocktails. This is what they come for. Come on. Yeah, it is. Uh, I will say I was in a blanket earlier now I'm not because I am fully warmed up and the pants may go by the end of it. Who knows? We'll see what happens. Listen. Oh, God. Oh, face off. Well, that was a journey that... That was a side note I'm glad we took. Yeah. Uh, yep. I mean, I'm just excited for the next time that we're going to bring something up, but cookies would date Caster Troy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, like, but not exclusively, because she's not an exclusive bitch. She can't be tied down. No. No. Too many options. Too many options. Oh, oh cookies, you give me life. And, and also me. <laughs> anyway. Oh, biscuits. Back to the case. Yeah. I just, the idea of me, like, on, like, a throne of some sort, talking to somebody, being very annoyed like kind of filing my nails like I'm not listening, but I'm listening. And then I'm just like, are you done? I need, I have some thoughts. And then you just like biscuits comes in from the side. Like, do you need a crystal? Do you want to like, are you, I'm sensing something. Are you sensing something? And I just be like, biscuits, sweetie. Um, Would you like a drink? Yeah. Why don't you go grab, you know what? I'd love one. I'd love one. And then like the second you leave, I'm like, okay, just so you know, him gone. She never knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's 
what this would <laughs> turn yes. into because you have to have plausible deniability. I do. I do. And I also feel like I would just be dripping everybody in rose quartz. I'd just be like, you're on a journey. Yeah. And I think that you'll really connect to your heart chakra better. If yeah. you just place this at Cookies begrudgingly is wearing the crystals. She doesn't want them. Of course. She doesn't want them. But she does it for her. She does it for her Pollux. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would also probably put the crystals in like rings on my fingers so it looks like I'm uh, wearing like brass knuckles, but they've got rose quartz on the end. So you feel good about me punching you, you know? Yeah. I do know. Oh, I don't do the dirty work. Never. I'm a backhander more than anything. What is that? <laughs> I don't know what that means. Oh, God. That's the most off the rails we've gone in a while. It's nice. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> gobble, gobble. <laughs> uh, I'm well aware <coughs> that this airs on a different day. Doesn't matter. Than Thanksgiving, but it's fine. They yeah. can pretend. Of course. So... Rick says he did the first shift. Randy says he did the first shift. We've talked about this. It's conflicting reports, and I don't know why. Again, it should be easy to figure out who did which shift. But Rick also said he was doing rounds between 1.30 and 2 a.m., which he wasn't because he was sitting at the desk because he buzzed in the thieves. It's possible he got his times mixed up. But Rick claims he responded to several radio calls from Randy, including one involving a fire alarm. Motion sensors detected movement in the blue room at 12.27 a.m., which is about an hour before the thieves entered the building. Investigators said the movements were consistent with a guard making their rounds. However, it is the only time those sensors detected any movement in the blue room until after the police arrived in the morning. And yet the man A was taken from the blue room. So how do they get it out of the room without tripping any sensors? And why would they be so cautious about those sensors and not so worried about the other ones? Past guards who work at the museum have said that the sensors weren't always 100%. An expert on museum security went to the museum two weeks after the robbery and said every single one of his movements was recorded on the sensor log. And the fire alarm went off at one point, so maybe it was just a weird glitch on the night of the heist, which feels way too convenient for me. Uh, and if you ask the guards who they think is responsible... Well, Rick claims that one of the men was David Turner, who is a member of the Boston mob, which we will get into shortly. But Randy, oh, Randy believes that one of the thieves was Brian McDevitt. Brian Michael McDevitt is a screenwriter, although all I could find was an article that claimed he was, quote, an award-winning freelance screenwriter. And to that I say, okay, but then why hasn't IMDb heard of him? There are a few Brian McDevitts on IMDb, but the only one that seems to be him is one who is only known for appearing as himself on 60 Minutes. Interesting. So I find that interesting uh, because either that's him or he doesn't have one. And how does he not have one? I have one for crying out loud. I don't know how, but I do. Someone did it. The world is weird. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, apparently, Brian attempted to rob the Hyde Collection in Glen Falls, New York in 1981. Brian and a partner allegedly hijacked a FedEx truck, posing as employees, and gained access to the museum. They carried handcuffs and duct tape to restrain the guards, but ended up getting stuck in traffic. And by the time they arrived, the museum had closed. Oh my God. <laughs> New York traffic, am I right? I was just going to make that exact joke, yes. Uh, the FedEx driver later identified Brian and his accomplice, and the pair were arrested. At the time of the Gardner heist, Brian was living in Boston, but he moved to California shortly after. Brian was questioned by the FBI and even went before a grand jury. He, of course, denied any involvement. His former girlfriend, Stephanie Rabinowitz, claimed Brian told her in 1992 that he was paid $300,000 to rob the Gardner Museum and that he had to leave the country because of it. Brian died in Colombia in 2004. Uh, I'm skeptical. Say he did rob the museum and got $300,000. By 1997, the museum was offering an award on a reward of $5 million to anyone who could lead to the recovery of the art. So why wouldn't he give up whoever hired him for another payday? And yes, it's possible he feared the person who hired him, because I know anyone that Cookies hires is afraid of her. Of course. That's her aesthetic. Uh, so I guess Brian isn't off the list. He was in town at the time. He's tried to do heists before. Who knows? Other more possible suspects. What about the mild-mannered former school teachers, Jerry and Rita Alter? There was a heist at the University of Arizona Museum in Tucson on November 29, 1985. A man and woman arrived at the museum shortly before it opened at 9 a.m. The woman talked with security while the man went upstairs. A few minutes later, the man came back down and the couple abruptly left. When security went upstairs, they found that a painting by Willem de Kooning had been cut from its frame. The painting was one of six works in Kooning's Woman series, the last one of the series that remains with a private collector as opposed to a museum, reportedly sold for $137.5 million in 2006. Uh, it was purchased by a hedge fund billionaire and sold by music's own David Geffen. Hello. At the time, the museum had no surveillance cameras. Police found no fingerprints. The couple were in the museum no more than 15 minutes, and according to a witness, they drove off in a red-colored vehicle. The witness did not get the license plate number. No one had a clue who the thieves were or where the painting went. Skip ahead a few decades. Jerry dies in 2012. And then when Rita died in 2017, their estate was purchased by a furniture and antiques company in New Mexico. When the company was going through the house, they found the missing Kooning painting hanging above Jerry and Rita's bed. <laughs> the painting was estimated to be worth over $150 million. Wow. And yes, it was authenticated and proven to be the missing Kooning. Now, apparently, there is photo proof of Jerry and Rita in Tucson the day before the heist. 
And the composite sketches of the thieves from the heist look a heck of a lot like Jerry and Rita. And honestly, if you compare those sketches to the ones from the Gardner Museum heist, they're a little similar. And some may say, Christy, they were just school teachers, not international art thieves. And to that I say, do you know how underpaid teachers are? (laughs) (laughs) Well played. In In 2011, Jerry published a book of short stories called The Cup and the Lip Exotic Tales. Not interested in reading that, Jerry. So sorry. Uh, One particular story called The Eye of the Jaguar is about a woman and her granddaughter stealing a priceless emerald from a museum. And yes, it's just a story and could mean nothing. But Jerry described his book as, quote, an amalgamation of actuality and fantasy. And yes, it's just a story. But if they didn't do it, how on earth did they end up with this painting? In their possession. And was the theft their only art heist? Remember, they both worked in public schools for most of their careers, and yet they could afford to travel to over 140 countries on all continents, including both polar regions. And not only that, but when Rita died, there was more than $1 million in their bank account. Their nephew said, quote, I guess I figured they were very frugal. They were just nice people. Huh. Uh-huh. And photos of them, yeah, they just look like this sweet, regular, totally normal couple. And it's like, wow, they totally stole that painting. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows what else they stole. And then they hung it in their room, which the balls of that I kind of respect. Uh, and from one art thief to another... Although this suspect actually admits to being a thief, Miles Connor Jr. admitted that he scoped out the Gardner Museum numerous times in the 1970s. He was even quoted as saying, quote, Some people consider me the biggest art thief in the country because I robbed a number of museums. In fact, Miles has admitted to more than 30 art heists. Now I'll tell you right away. Miles did not do the actual Gardner heist himself. He was in prison at the time. Okay. But that doesn't mean he wasn't potentially involved in some way. On April 14th, 1975, two men entered Boston's Museum of Fine Arts around noon, walked up to the Rembrandt that was on loan at the museum, grabbed the painting off the wall, pistol-whipped a guard who tried to stop them, and walked out the back door. No one was ever charged with the theft. Nine months later, after being caught for previous crimes, which included bail jumping and an art heist in Maine, Miles was facing 15 years in prison. So Miles offered to return the Rembrandt in exchange for a lighter sentence. And it worked. They dropped his sentence to only four years. And this set a precedence for thieves that stolen art could be used as a bargaining chip. But we know that Miles was in prison at the time of the Gardner heist, so he could not have physically been there. But Miles claims that uh, a former associate visited him in prison shortly after the Gardner heist and boasted that he and a friend had robbed the museum and planned to use the stolen masterpieces by Rembrandt Vermeer Degas as a bargaining chip with authorities to negotiate Miles' release. 
He claims the associate said, quote, just like you did with the Rembrandt. But Miles also claims the two thieves died shortly after the heist. But even though they're dead, he refuses to name their names. Mm. If you really know... Uh, if you really know who took the paintings and they're dead, why would you not admit it? Unless they're connected to somebody that you're nervous about, possibly, right? Yeah. And that may sound like I don't agree with Miles as to who he thinks the real thieves are, but I have to say, I actually think Miles and I are in agreement. Um, because it has to do something with the mob. That's where my brain goes. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll give a heads up. That so many of these guys are named Bobby. <laughs> like, so to save us from getting confused, because I'm about to throw a lot of names at you, I'm just going to refer to them by their last names. Cookies would want it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the story goes kind of all over the place, and I'm running out of time to make these notes. Like, we're literally planning on recording this in less than an hour, so this might get weird. <laughs> And remember, with the mob, it's just a long chain of people who are connected in some way. So some people may not seem worth bringing up, but you know I can't stop myself. And in the end, good God, we're hoping this all just makes some sense. So, October 29th, 1989, the New England mob did a peacekeeping ceremony in a house in Medford. This included burning holy cards, pricking fingers, etc. It was their way of welcoming new members to the family. Should I find this as cool as I do? Absolutely not. (laughs) I'm just saying that I love that I called this with biscuits. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, you're right. You would know... uh, I also feel... I'd be like we're we're having a meeting and you would come in and be like... Just some snacks. I just brought some, just here's just like a little light tray of nachos. Yep. And then if none of them took them, I'd be making eye contact with them and they would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'd love them. These are so great. And I would be like, thanks, babe. Yep. <laughs> and that's just where we're, where we're at. I love that you've <laughs> – because in, uh, in my head, you are – you're Pollux now, like – or cat, <laughs> Yeah, Pollux, Castor yeah. and Pollux. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I just want to tie your shoe and keep you safe. <laughs> oh, boy. So the FBI managed to have a bug at this very ceremony. And based on conversations that were heard, Vinnie Ferreira was arrested November 14th, 1989. Ferreira, Ferreira was lower down on the food chain in the mob, but after the imprisonment and death of some of his leaders, he was looking to get himself a bigger piece of the pie, as it were. So while Ferreira's in prison, he's visited by his driver, Bobby Donati. Donati visited with Ferreira once before the Gardner heist and twice after. Some believe that Donati arranged the heist in the hope of using the paintings to get Ferreira out of jail. Now, Donati Donati was close friends with Miles Connor, and he even previously stole five artworks with Miles Connor. Miles claimed that Donati planned their heist, but it was Miles that got caught. And that's when he used the other stolen art to get out a lesser sentence. An informant also claimed that before the Gardner heist, he saw Donati at a mob hangout known as the Shack with a paper bag containing two BPD uniforms. 
On September 24, 1991, police went to Donati's house and found blood on his front porch. Donati was allegedly shot at his front door, dragged to the trunk of his car, where his body was found several days later. Despite the fact that Donati was under police surveillance at the time of his death, his murder remains unsolved. Interesting. Now, Donati was close friends, childhood friends with Bobby Garanti, who also happens to be related to the Rossetti family. Garanti's job history is sketchy at best. He was a salesman for a while, a vegetable packer, and part of more than a dozen armed robberies. After one such robbery at a bank in Natick, Massachusetts, Garanti walked into a nearby house and took a hostage. Unfortunately for him, the hostage was a judge's daughter. Oh. Now remember, members of the Rossetti family admitted to casing the Gardner Museum in September 1981. Their plan was to focus on the blue and yellow rooms and to go for the Whistler and the Matisse. Now, since Garanti is a known thief and has ties to the crime family who'd previously planned to rob the museum, is it possible that Garanti decided to go ahead with the heist? At the time of the heist, most of the Rossetti family were being surveilled at TRC Auto Electric, which sounds like a mechanic shop, but in reality, it's, quote, the place you go if you needed a particular item. The man who ran TRC Auto Electric was Carmelo Merlino, who was basically like the godfather. It was said that if you had a problem or an idea, you brought it to Merlino. And in case you want a specific connection between Merlino and Garenti, the feds believed Merlino was supplying Garenti with cocaine to sell. Now, here's something I'm going to, I'm just going to start tossing names at you. So this is going to get overwhelming, and I'm sorry. Merlino's main crew consisted of Charlie Pappas, David Turner, George Reisfelder, and Leonard Demuzio. So Merlino and Pappas both get indicted on drug charges in May 1994. They're both given five-year sentences, and Merlino, of course, hates the idea, so he starts to claim uh, he could have the Gardner paintings returned if his sentence was reduced. But Merlino can never give supply proof that he has even ever set eyes on these paintings, but that doesn't mean his crew is so innocent. The sister-in-law of Reisfelder, one of Merlino's crew, said that she once arrived at his apartment where he was hanging a painting in his living room. She said she hadn't heard about the Gardner heist at the time, so she didn't think anything of it, except the fact that she didn't like the thick gold frames she described as frou-frou uh, that surrounded the art. She questioned it, and Reisfelder said he had to have the, cus- the frame custom-made. Years later, when shown pictures of the art that was stolen, Reisfelder's sister-in-law is adamant that the art she saw in his apartment was the missing Manet. Reisfelder also looks eerily like one of the composite sketches if he was wearing a fake mustache and glasses. There is something I love about the boldness of hanging stolen art in your living room, like in your bedroom where there aren't going to be people in and out, but like in your living room where people open the door to see it, that's that's bold. Reisfelder was also sent to jail in 1966 for a robbery that ended with the death of a railway clerk. He stayed in prison for 16 years before he was released when it was found that he had been wrongfully convicted. 
So I get the idea of spitefully hanging stolen art in a plain, in plain view as like an FU to all those years he spent in jail. It was also said that not only did Reisfelder drive a dark hatchback similar to what was seen outside the Gardner Museum on the night of the heist, but during the heist, one of the thieves kept going down to the basement to check on the guards to see if they were okay or if they needed any water. Reisfelder's sister-in-law Donna said that is absolutely what Reisfelder is like. He would he would always go and make sure he would be a host, even in a move a moment of him stealing something, he would still try to be a host. But even if he was responsible for the heist, Reisfelder died from a cocaine overdose on March 11th, 1991. Was he a regular user? I don't know. Was he using cocaine because that was the main drug that Merlino worked with? Possibly. Was it a murder made to look like an overdose? I mean, without an autopsy report, I can't say for sure, but People in this crew die within a small span, so I am suspicious of everything. Then we have David Turner, one of Merlino's guys who apparently had a close, almost father-son relationship with Garenti. And Turner is a real piece of work. One crime that Turner was responsible for, the 1991 armed robbery at the Bull and Finch pub. And while that name may not mean anything to you, you should know it as the very pub that inspired the hit TV series, Cheers. Oh! On September 7th, 1991, two masked men broke into the bar just after closing, knocked an employee unconscious with a liquor bottle, and stole $50,000 from two safe deposit boxes. But just like Cheers, it's the place where everybody knows your name, and Turner was indicted on charges of masked armed robbery, assault, battery, and theft. A former employee of the pub was indicted as an accessory and conspiracy to armed robbery charges. Now, Turner claims he was in Florida at the time of the Gardner heist. His bank records back him up on that. Although, couldn't he just give someone else his bank card and have them go to Florida and use his bank card? Because as far as I know, that's the only proof. They don't have video proof of him taking money out or purchasing anything it's they only specifically have his bank information right um security guard randy is convinced that david turner is who he saw on the night of the robbery and surveillance spotted turner taking a vase out of his trunk in september 1991 could that have been the chinese artifact from the shang dynasty it's possible but of course turner denies any involvement in the heist a guy named Anthony Romano, who was once prison buddies with Merlino, said that he believes Merlino was involved in the heist, and Romano was pissed at Merlino because he allegedly turned Romano's ex-wife into a drug mule. So Romano agrees to wear a wire, and they find out that Merlino, Turner, and a man named Stephen Rossetti were planning a robbery. On February 7th, 1999, the men were carrying grenades, bulletproof vests, flex ties, handcuffs, and multiple weapons when they tried to rob the Loomis Fargo Armored Truck Depot. A sting was put into place, and the men were told they could walk if they just gave up the Gardner paintings. The three men, of course, said they had no connection to the paintings at all, 
so they were sent to prison for a nearly 40 years total. Whoa. Turner was sentenced to 460 months in jail. And in 2007, the Court of Appeals reaffirmed the sentence. So Turner was set to be released in 2032. But for reasons that were not made public, that got moved to 2025. And then he was just up and released in 2019. For reasons we don't know about. Did he make some sort of backroom deal with the feds? Because as far as I know, that's the only way you get a bunch of time taken off your sentence. And yes, there's a thing called good behavior. Uh, but those sorts of things get logged, whereas no explanation has been given as to why he was let out so much earlier than he was supposed to. And honestly, if it was a case of good behavior, Turner was accused of killing a social worker in 1985 uh, accused of shooting Leonard DiMuzio in June 1991. And we're talking shooting him, stuffing him in a trunk, and then abandoning the vehicle so DiMuzio's body wouldn't be found for months. Um, Turner was never charged with that crime. Uh, he was, however, charged for a 1990 home invasion, but he was never convicted as two of the witnesses were mysteriously killed and a third refused, refused to testify against him. One of the witnesses was Pappas, a mob member who became a, an FBI informant. When Pappas agreed to testify, Turner allegedly shot him outside of his own home, November 22nd, 1995. So he's terrifying and currently just wandering the streets, which doesn't make me feel great. You know? Yeah. Uh, allegedly. Of course. <laughs> of course. It goes without saying. Yeah. Uh, I just want to make sure he hears that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I do not want him to hear this. I would like him to not know I exist. I uh, cookies is gone. <laughs> That's the thing in the in the case of real danger. Cookies is like mm, nope. no th no thanks no thank you no thanks yeah. Uh, some have suggested that if Garenti had access to the art, he would have used it as a bargaining chip to get all of these guys out of prison earlier. But Garenti's widow said that Garenti had given the stolen art to Bobby Genty, a local hoodlum who owned an auto body business called G&M Auto. Isn't it always an auto body business? Genty denies ever having seen the paintings, going so far as to say that Garanti's wife is, quote, she's crazy, she's bipolar, she's nuts, I know she's nuts. Which, if we've learned anything about people who like to repeat themselves and people who are liars being the same people... Uh, but the FBI were ecstatic to get any sort of lead, no matter how flimsy. So they immediately raided Genty's home in May 2012. And they were so confident that they would find the paintings. They actually made mock-ups of posters that said the art had been recovered. Uh, and sadly, no paintings were found. They looked everywhere, including using ground-penetrating technology. But what they did find hidden in a Rubbermaid tub underneath the trap door in Genty's shed. They found newspaper clippings about the Gardner heist and a piece of paper that listed all of the art that was missing and all of its estimated values. Ooh. In March, eight, March 18th, 2013, the FBI held a press conference saying that they are confident they know who did it and the thieves are dead and they don't really know where the art is located, but they won't name the suspects because it's still an ongoing investigation. Then what the hell was the point 
of the press conference, guys. According to court filings, Reisfelder and Leonard DiMuzio were their people of interest, who they are convinced did this. They are the people who Miles is convinced did this. And I might agree, but I'm not sure yet. I'm all over the place. Uh, in May 2013, Genty was sentenced to felony possession of a firearm and ammo and possession of unregistered silencers. It was said that Genty's health was so bad that he'd likely die in prison. So his lawyer told him that if Genty could give him something, anything on the Gardner paintings, Genty could be removed from prison where he could go home and die surrounded by his family. Genty said, quote, there ain't no paintings. Does that mean he doesn't have them? Or does that mean that they have since been destroyed? I don't know. Because again, we have not touched on this. I don't know why I said again. Uh, if you take painting that's from like hundreds of years ago and roll it up, and then who knows the condition that they're being state like light dampness, temperature, all of these things, these they could just be completely destroyed at this point. They could also be hung up in the basement of like a Bond villain or something. Who knows? <laughs> uh, and I don't know who diagnosed Genty, but he didn't die immediately after like the doctors had predicted. Although I'm starting to wonder if they told him he was dying to scare him to give up the paintings. Oh, but Genty did die from a stroke at 87 years old on September 23rd, 2021. So up to date, yes, folks. Uh, so just to quickly summarize the mobsters who might have been involved in the Gardner heist, because I'm frantic and out of time and I might have forgotten to mention the demise of some of these men. So Genty died September of 2021 from a stroke. Demuzio. Uh, was murdered in June 1991. Pappas, murdered November 1995. Reisfelder, overdose, March 1991. Donati, September 1991, murder. Garanti, 2004, cancer. Merlino, 2005, died in prison. So it just feels like too much of a coincidence that the men who were potentially involved in all of this died from mysterious deaths all within years of the heist. Reisfelder, Donati, and Demuzio were all dead within a year of the heist. That timing cannot be a coincidence. And if it's not the mob, which I'm fairly certain that it is, there's also the possibility it was just some random art thieves. And I say that because there was a similar art heist less than two years before the gardener. Leila Bean, the caretaker of the Bangs Hallett House in Yarmouth, was locking up around 10 p.m. on July 22, 1988, when two men waiting outside the back door rushed inside and grabbed her. They blindfolded her, tied her at the wrists and ankles, and duct-taped her to a chair. The men then proceeded to steal nearly $100,000 in artifacts, including six paintings, 200 pieces of scrimshaw, a silver-plated teapot, and a 13th-century Chinese vase. Oh! The heist has never been solved, but the fact that it's so similar to the M.O. of the Gardner heist, I can't help but wonder if it was done by the same men. And for those who are curious, 
Yarmouth is only 74.9 miles or 121 kilometers away from Boston, so it's more than possible that the jobs could have been done by the same local crew. All I know is neither heist has been solved. And the idea that both took a random Chinese vase feels interesting to me. Uh, investigators have said, quote, if we could have charged somebody, we would have. So as of now, nearly 32 years later, no charges have been filed in connection with the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. The theft was featured on America's Most Wanted twice in the first year. However, much of the media had long moved on from the case. As a week after the robbery occurred, 21 members of the New England Mafia were charged with racketeering, loan sharking, and murder. So the heist was very quickly forgotten. The FBI believed the death of Bobby Genty would somehow unearth the paintings. And since Genty died just two weeks before this recording, it's possible there could be an update on this case sooner than later. But honestly, I think after this long, if they weren't already destroyed years ago, whoever has the art isn't going to give it up regardless as to what money they were offered. Yeah. And so I, yeah, will the art... Point, yeah. Oh, yeah. Will the art ever be found? Experts say that 90% of stolen art is never recovered. So it doesn't look good. And both thank you and I'm sorry for this journey. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails... I'm your bitch, Cookies. <laughs> no, oh. wait. But cookies is no one's bitch. <laughs> nope. Absolutely not. So I got to walk that back. Oh, yeah. God, what a gift. Listen, I have some cuckoo bananas theories. I'm not kidding. Out of left field. But I also need to hit the can. So let's take yeah. a quick break. We're going to come back, get into our theories and final thoughts. Final thoughts, Jesus, on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Of course, we're discussing the Gardner Museum heist. Now, I've tried again to keep my notes in order. I don't know. 
I did for most of it. And then at the end, they, they're all over the place. So we'll see what we get. Sure. First of all, the quote about Isabella, not a woman, she's a locomotive. What I immediately thought of was, toot, toot, she's a brandy. <laughs> oh, maybe that's why I respond to her. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I was like, who's driving this train? Is it Brandy or Isabella? <laughs> yeah. Um, I also was interested too, and I, I because we delete everything as soon as it's done, I can't remember if I got into it in the Army Hammer episode or not, but there's also a connection in their family, and I can't remember exactly where, to them dealing in forgeries. I I don't think I did get into it in the episode because that episode there was so much to get through. There was a lot. But I'll get it I'll look into it and 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 see what it was that I because I can't remember exactly what it was, but obviously the family is of course knee deep in the art world, but mm. I I do believe that there was this very kind of high-end forgery operation going on Ooh. in New York City and I believe that they were caught up in it. So of course. more on that in the future. Um I love Isabella's <laughs> demands when she died. However, dying in 1924, I don't know whether she had the purview to remember or to know that that security would, technology would change. Like, I don't think that any of us at the time of our deaths would think I should make a stipulation that's like, however... If for safety or security, do you know yes. what I mean? Like, I don't think that she thought about that. No. Uh, bless her, obviously. Um, okay. Now we're just going to get into it. So it's interesting to me that security was like the last of the money spent in 1982, as you mentioned, that these guys were not getting paid much more than minimum wage, which feels again like if you're not going to soup up the place with like high-end technology, then you've got to pay top dollar for your security guys, in my opinion. Yeah. Because there's no reason why. Why would they have an allegiance to you? One of them wants to be in a band. The other one's practicing his trombone, which sounds like he wants an audition for the first one's band. So... <laughs> I just feel like that's the first place where I was like, that's a red flag sure. about them. Um, it is interesting to me the way that it started, the fact that they were like, this is a robbery, which is kind of funny, but also like, <laughs> go with me on this. Because immediately I was like, I feel like these guards were in on it, whether they were paid off or they knew the guys or whatever. Like, sure. The fact that the way that they recounted the story involved these robbers dress as police saying this is a robbery to your point it does sound like a movie yeah. it doesn't sound to me like members of the mob who are killing people who are these you know fearless whatever do we really believe that like whitey bulgers guys would like be going in and being like this is a robbery like i, <laughs> I just don't buy that mm -hmm. so to me again Alleging, speculating, who knows? It's interesting, again, that Rick, I believe, has never, again, they've never been able to disprove that he was involved. So to me, it's like, again, when we're when we're going on them as the eyewitnesses, yeah. and to me, they're not necessarily reputable witnesses because there's no one else to corroborate. He's never been fully cleared. It is, a to me, a red flag, the detail of... Uh, this is a robbery. Because that's just not, I just don't think that that's how mob people, and I agree with you, it does really feel like this is mob related. But either way, it doesn't feel like in real life anybody's like, 
you know, this is a robbery. Because also at that point, they know they've been tied up. They're handcuffed. Yeah. Like, I think they know that it's a robbery. Yeah. It's also interesting to me that they made the point of, of pointing out that the mustaches seemed fake. Because I'm like, either it's like, okay, that was the case. Or is that, again, just something trying to throw the police off the scent? Right. I don't know. Now, my question is this. Because the other thing, too, is how on earth would these two people know to get the printout of the motion detector? That's like you would have to have such a specific knowledge. Yeah. You'd have to have a connection in some way. But the fact that they didn't know about the hard drive, again, feels to me like two dopes in their early 20s who are like, I can hook you up. I'm the security guy. I can even, I'll get you the printout out of there. And then it's like, doy, I didn't know about the hard drive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Again, I'm just right. I'm just speculating, but I it feels again, you know, interesting to me. Yeah. My next question is this. They talk about the motion sensor. We have no concept of how many people were walking around in that room. A motion sensor, I'm assuming at this time, especially, it's just gonna tell you that there's motion. Right. So we are assuming that they're telling the truth, that they were tied up in the basement when all of this was going on. For all we know, they were walking around the museum with these two people saying, this is what to do here, this is what to do there, there's the secret passage, helping them. Sure. All of that yeah. is possible. My question is this, because we know the one frame was left on the security chair. Yeah. Here's what I'm alleging. This is one of my batshit theories I've come up with. Is it possible that the security guards were in on it? Sure. They go around, they help them, they do the whole thing, and then as they're getting to the end, they double-cross them. And the two robbers, at that point, tie them up, whatever, put them in the basement. And they're like, go to the police, tell them the truth, you'll die. Good luck. It's more than possible. I, I'm going to post photos. They've only ever shown photos of Rick being tied up. They never showed, because again, they just do not show Randy ever. But the tape job, like, yes, it was kind of around his eyes, although you could see him looking over the tape. So I don't know if it fell down or if they just did a really bad job. So it goes like around the center of his head and then like around his head, like it's old timey toothache. So you have the big cloth or whatever that you tie around your head like that. So it was like, what, what did that do? Like it was just the tape job was very like, that's not a professional, you know? No. It's just well, weird to me. Could they have done that themselves? Great question, because again, I'm like, who are these people? Because to your point, which is a great point, actually, why would they remain alive? Why wouldn't they have just been killed? Much like why weren't the thieves then killed? Which, who knows, they might have been. But it doesn't feel to me that this is a super professional job. Sure. Just the way that things went, and again, like you're saying, the tape job, that feels weird. Again, if we're talking mob guys, I'm going to go out on a limb, and this is a compliment to them. Uh, <laughs> they know what they're doing. They've got some experience. So this brings me to another, well, maybe this isn't so bad shit. What if 
this is A, and this is, again, a huge concept. Mm -hmm. But what if this is a scavenger hunt? And part of it is because we know that there was this bringing in ceremony that part of your initiation is you have to go and you have to steal a certain list of things because we know that there was this other robbery two years prior that was so similar that had the Chinese vase, vase. Interesting. Is there a checklist of certain things that you have to get to prove whatever, that you can pull it off, that you're not going to get caught, all these kinds of things? Is it possible that it's just for fun? Is it possible that this is like, it's a game? That it's like, you know, this is a game for people in the mob. Or like, you know, we've seen all kinds of movies depicting like the uber rich who hunt humans, for example. Or, sure. you know what I mean? Like, is it some le- some kind of crazy secret society, whatever, black market, who knows, mob or, or not mob, high-end sure. secret scavenger hunt game because that would explain a couple of things it would explain why they were tied up weird it could explain this is a robbery it you know what i mean like there's just this kind of element to it that doesn't fully make sense it could explain two weeks prior with the guys the guy trying to get in there like testing the waters like it's it's again this challenge that you have to pass either for fun for sport or to prove yourself in some way Sure. Oh, um, I love the idea of it being a game. I mean, right? Because you can't tell me that if someone's like, this is a robbery, that he wouldn't crack up. I mean, again, and- it just to me, that is like, I don't know. I, I, because, because, because look, I know that I love the stat 90% of stolen art is never found, but it's like, what do you do with this stuff if you have it? And the other thing that speaks to this to me that makes it feel like it's not about the money or it's not its prime purpose isn't about stealing it for the money sure. is the way it's stolen. The haphazard way it's been the paintings have been cut out of the frames. If you are a high-end art lover who knows art and would want these pieces, you would be sick to your stomach at the idea that somebody's just going to hack it out of its frame and and roll it up or whatever to get it out of there, right? Yeah, you'd think so. So to me, that again is an element where it was like, they took 81 minutes. Think about that. They took an hour and 20 minutes. That's a lot of time. Did you need to steal 13 items? Or if you really cared about the making the money, et cetera, why didn't you steal seven and steal them well so that they had resale value. Now, I know they're always going to have resale value, but you know what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. I just don't think anybody who has a connection to the value of the items would be haphazardly slashing and burning. Because if they knew sure. how much that one thing was worth, it'd be like, you know, well, let's get three. We'll be very delicate. And then we'll make sure that we're going to get top dollar. Sure. Again, I also don't get why like it was a very like we got to get out they got it and then they quickly left and it's like you you had still like another five hours well before anyone was going to come in you could have taken more time and exactly and an hour and 20 minutes is a fair amount of time it's not like they had to be in and out in 10 yeah right like it's like you didn't have to like run like crazy to get this all done like an hour 20 minutes Mm -hmm. i feel like you're 
you're just kind of sauntering. Um, you know, potentially. Sure. Um, my next question again is, if it was a game, or if not, are these paintings just hidden? Are they hidden somewhere that we're just never going to find them? Again, on this batshit crazy theory of mine that it is just for sport, are they literally in a trunk buried in the middle of a field somewhere that we will either find or never find? Are they, to your point, destroyed? I think that's also an interesting thing. If they were being so haphazard in how they were handling them, yeah, these are ancient, you know, these are, it's fine art that was painted in, you know, Hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. If you roll it up, guess what? It's probably oh, not going to be so yeah, good yeah. for the paint. Um, because I knew, I mean, a lot of museums are like climate controlled. There's certain light that they use because they can't yeah. have direct sun. I mean, that's how delicate people treat this art. And these people are taking a, a <laughs> like a, a Swiss army knife, slashing it out of there, you know, yeah. not great. So, Okay, the next thing I have to talk about, though, is this couple, Jerry and Rita, because for me, the story that I've already written is that their marriage was failing and they needed to spice things up. And so they they deke into this museum there and Jerry's like, I can steal a fucking painting. And she's like, yeah, okay, whatever, Mr. Nerd. He steals the painting. She's like, I've never been more attracted to you. (laughs) And they go home and they bone like crazy, and that's why they put it above a bed, of the above the bed. It was their first. This is the, again, this is the story because it's written. it sets her off every time she sees it because it gets her hot, and it's this memory of how they saved their marriage, and then <laughs> potentially, yeah, they needed a little bit more. Like any good drug, you need your next fix, right? She wants to go see Jerry get her hot again, huh? So then it's got you got a little bit. You, you need a little bit more to get hot, though. You're gonna need up yeah. the ante a little bit more. Yeah. My question is this: Go with me. I I have not seen a picture of Jerry and Rita, so guess what? You could have completely you could blow this out of the water in a second. But the descriptions we were going on were also based on these two Yahoo chuckleheads, security guards. So who even knows? But is it possible if one of them was six feet and one of them was five nine that the five nine one was Rita? Is it possible that it was Jerry and Rita in disguises? That would also explain the fake mustaches. Yeah. It was also the little one, the five nine one, was described as being slight, and the six foot one was more of a medium build. So more of the size of a man and a woman. I am immediately when this is over going to be googling what these people look like because I course. need to know. Of course. Um, but I just like the idea that this could have become a drug for them, and they happen to be very good at it, also unassuming because they're this kind of, you know, whatever couple, and that is how they financed their travel and their dreams, et cetera. I mean, also, watch out, because I'm thinking about writing that into a screenplay, and this isn't a joke. Um, (laughs) My, I, if I had had more time, I would have tried to, like, see if I could find other heists in the area to see if they kept it going, because if that what is that's what lit their marriage, and they remained together for the rest of their lives, God, I hope they stole some other stuff. They I kept it fresh. Uh, I want to believe it, and I'm going to register this with the WGA so no one else can take this idea. I'm not even kidding because I'm going to write it. It has to, it, it has to start amazing. small with like someone just took something from like a grocery store, and the other one and was like. It, what are oh, you doing? I see. And then next sure. next thing you know, it's like, but that's not f- fun anymore. You got to up the risk factor each time. And then at one point, you're sneaking into a pool that's closed down to. <laughs> to- <laughs> 
Oh, God. Oh, well, listen, yeah. we can't talk about it anymore because yeah. I can't give away the plot to my a hit movie that's going to come out. Of course. Out. Um, Can it star Nicolas Cage and <laughs> John Travolta? And somehow they're both the husband and the wife? I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> and it's a hard yes. Um, okay, last thing very quickly again. Is it actually the police? I think that there could be something to that theory, too. Um, it's interesting to me always, again, as we know, one of my biggest fears in the world is crooked cops. Yes. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, it does seem interesting to me that the police report was changed by those two eyewitnesses, Justin and Nancy. It does seem interesting to me that they were never approached by the FBI. Who knows? Uh, and then, I mean, but again, if we're talking about... And again, this is a speculation, and I am not in any way insinuating that the Boston police force is connected to the mob. I'm not suggesting that at all. But is it possible that one or two police officers could be? I think absolutely that could be possible, in the grand scheme of anything being possible, just like any police officers in any police force could be connected to something untoward. Um, we've again, seen I don't, that movie. We've seen the movies. Scorsese? I'm not saying it's common. Yeah. Eyebrows? Yes. Okay, Scorsese. He was there you the Because it's exactly. Matt Damon and... Uh, the, the Departed, right? Yeah, DiCaprio. Yes. So again, I'm not saying that it's common. I don't think it's common. Jokes aside, I really don't. Do I think it's possible? I do. That there could be one or two in, in you know, 50 years? Yeah, I think it's possible. Um, but I think, again, at the end of the day, it feels like the mob is probably connected. Or, again, to me, my theory of my own that I love is that this is extremely wealthy people and it's a game. And I, I uh, have nothing else to base that on. But uh, there you go. Uh, speculating for true crime and cocktails, Laura Nash. <laughs> I, the idea of it being some sort of game. Yeah. I mean, the I, I, I agree that it doesn't seem like it was the most together and you know like it was a little sloppier than cookies would like to see done thank you but i'm still amazed they got away and that they like that whoever did it wasn't some chucklehead that's out there like bragging about it like tanya harding's bodyguard who told the world he was involved in that and so i'm just amazed that after all this time no one has done that Unless the people who were involved did say something and now no longer exist because of that. Right. I mean, it's more than possible. But, yeah, I'm always so quick to be like, oh, the mob. But, <laughs> yeah. but that's because I both fear and respect them. Of course. In you know, I don't respect the bad stuff. I just, I respect them as a family unit. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that with fear sometimes comes respect. That is true. I'm, and it's like, oh, I yeah. respect that you will kill me. And I respect oh, I, that. Yeah. And I'm not going to cross you because you will kill me. <laughs> that's, a, that's a form of respect. <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, that is a good point. And yeah. look, I won't tell nobody nothing. <laughs> <laughs> look, on that note... Uh, Christy Oxborough, this was such a fun romp. I loved our uh, crazy uh, off the rail tangents, but this was such. I I really enjoyed this episode of the show. It there is something when you bring up mob that I become electrified. You do. So you do. well, you're going to be a consultant on my hit screenplay that is going to be coming out. <laughs> 
at some point in the next few years. Stay tuned for that. I can't wait. Listen, you and me both. Um, if you haven't already, give us a follow on the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you like a little bit more, we offer many bonus episodes every single month. There's a live Q&A every single month. There's a poll where you can help pick an episode of the show every single month at patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. Check it out. It's a whole lot of fun. Do you want to tell uh, the listeners about next week's episode? Oh, um, I love that I was tr- trying to think of how I was going to put it. Um, on the next True Crime and Cocktails, Unsolved Mysteries, Cindy Song. We're going back to our roots, dear listeners. We're doing a... OG episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which I'm yeah. so excited about. It is season 12, episode 7, Cindy Song. And part of the reason is, is that this case takes place at a Halloween party. Yeah. And we felt like that was thematic because that episode, of, of course, is coming out October 26th. Yeah. I don't know the date. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Yeah. I was like, wait, is it? Doesn't this one come out? When does this one come out? My brain. Yep. This one has, this one comes out after the anniversary and then the week after that, which is the closest to Halloween. So that makes sense. I'm unwell. Listen, (laughs) you and me both. You and me both, baby. Um, Listen, uh, before we go very quickly, we do shout outs on the show all the time. And I want to give a shout out to uh, my dear friend who passed. Her name was Nikki Moran. Her her maiden name was Lindgren. Uh, She passed after a three-year battle with uh, breast cancer. It's a tragedy. Ladies, people uh, with female parts, uh, get your pap smears, get your boobs checked. It's uh, no joke. Um, I I love her very, very much. And she's very, very missed. So shout out. Uh, to you, Nikki. I know that you're listening to this episode somewhere else right now. Uh, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Nikki. Good night, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs>